BFFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald faced truth. Well, you know I'm going to give it to you straight, but uh, I uh, shook my head today when I saw that Kevin Warren, the Big Ten Conference Commissioner, was leaving his post, leaving that job to take the job back in the NFL with the Chicago Bears. He'll become team president. He will oversee the Bears' pursuit of a new stadium. I don't think he's going to be involved with football operations, usually the right hand and the left hand little separation of church and state there, but Kevin Warren going back to the NFL. I got to say, um, his his legacy in college sports is at best conflicted. Really. He raided the Pac-12 conference. He backstabbed George Klyovkov, the conference commissioner. He blew up 100 years of tradition in pursuit of fortifying the Big Ten Conference and making college athletics feel a little bit more like pro sports. He also oversaw a windfall media rights deal. Broke records. Give him credit there. And so I think he'll do fine in helping the Bears build a football stadium. Kevin Warren knows where the money's buried. Not a bad hire. But uh, I wrote today at johnconzano.com, and if you're not subscribed, uh, you didn't get the palace intrigue this morning. And what I mean by that is you didn't get to see behind the curtains, know what was going on, what's really going on, uh, because I wrote a column today about Kerry Cecil, who is, you know, Chuck Cecil, the former NFL player, former Arizona player. He's an assistant coach at Arizona now. His wife is in the media relations, crisis management, fixing business. More or less, she's a fixer. She self-described. She, she called herself a fixer in an interview with Sports Business Journal. Now, Kevin Warren got hired in 2020 by the Big Ten. People may remember when you go back to the early part of the pandemic, like the first two months of the pandemic, Kevin Warren was uh, vilified. He was uh, getting uh, criticized by coaches in the Big Ten. Players were threatening lawsuits. Parents weren't happy. Media partners weren't happy. Fans weren't happy. And Kevin Warren did what a lot of executives do. He turned to a crisis management firm called Anishel that bills itself um, as a headline fixer, so to speak. You know where I'm going with this. Like, everybody else can talk about Kevin Warren and what he did for the Big Ten Conference and why is he leaving and is college athletics better off before or after Kevin Warren. Like, we'll get to all that. But I first want to get to the idea that in this world that Kevin Warren lives, you know, it might have been the most important hire of his tenure because hiring Carrie Cecil and her firm essentially rebranded Kevin Warren. He ended up on HBO Real Sports. He had her helping with sort of the talking points when UCLA and USC were announced going to the Big Ten Conference. Um, it was Kerry Cecil who was off to the side. Uh, Big Ten Media Day when he makes that big speech and he says, you know, we're not done yet. Uh, you know, he sort of uh, put panic in the Pac-12 footprint by announcing that, you know, there were going to be further, further moves, uh, maybe possible expansion, all of that stuff. You know, and he was, you know, when he was on the podium at at Big Ten Media Day in Indianapolis at Lucas Oil Field Stadium, it was uh, Kevin Warren on the podium. 
But the words he was speaking, I'm still not sure if they were his words. He had uh, Carrie Cecil and that firm already on retainer and already sort of floating around the building, um, you know, engineering, fixing, uh, you know, massaging uh, all of the media narrative. Here was Warren that day in July. We are blessed now, especially with the addition of the University of California, Los Angeles, and the University of Southern California, that we will have a footprint in the three major media markets, from New York to Los Angeles to Chicago, which will allow us to be even bolder when it comes to corporate partnership and activation. So I look forward to building a very successful and robust business in that area. Look, I wrote about Kerry Cecil today. If you want the whole skitty on that, uh, you can read it at johnconzano.com. But my biggest takeaway here is that, you know, Kevin Warren was in crisis about 70 days into his tenure. He hires the fixer, the crisis management team, the rebranding team. He ends up on the cover of Sports Business Journal. He ends up with the, you know, the HBO Real Sports interview with Bryant Gumbel. He ends up on the podium at Media Day. He ends up uh, being celebrated sort of as you know, the guy who brought UCLA and USC into the fold. Now, others will tell you that, you know, no, no, no. He was more of a facilitator of all that stuff. But that doesn't matter because there's the perception of what happened and then there's what really happened. And I'm all about giving you what really happened. And I can tell you that Carrie Cecil uh, was doing her job. I don't blame her. Now, and she's not alone. She's not the only fixer out there that works with Fortune 500 companies and conferences. But let's look at the different clients that this firm, Anishel, has. And, and I looked at this, uh, you know, in the last couple of months, I've been looking really, uh, really, really hard at this company and its relationships across sports. But you tell me if you see a common thread here. Uh, this is a company that represents Kevin Warren personally. This is a company that represents the Big Ten Conference. This is a company that represents the NCAA. This is a company that represents the Chicago Bears. This is a company that uh, has Fox Sports as a client. This is a company that has UCLA as a client. You tell me. You see the thread? The common thread is Kerry Cecil and, and Anishel. When you look at Kevin Warren's path, when you look at the Big Ten bringing in UCLA and USC and Fox Sports' role in all of this, and then he's escaping to the Chicago Bears, uh, the dirty little secret is that the Big Ten Conference didn't offer Kevin Warren a contract extension. Didn't offer it to him two months ago. Didn't offer it to him two weeks ago when this Chicago Bear rumbling came out. Oh, he's thinking about talking to the Bears. Uh, you know, I speculated on this show. Could this be Kevin Warren trying to negotiate publicly? Is this the guy who, you know, engineered the groundbreaking expansion in the Big Ten Conference and landed that billion-dollar TV deal? And suddenly the Big Ten doesn't want Kevin Warren back? You have to ask yourself why. Was he pushed out the door, or did Kevin Warren look around and go, hey, I've done everything I can possibly do here. And I'm here to tell you that he did not have consensus in the Big Ten Conference as it pertained to potentially adding more partners. If you're a Pac-12 fan who has been worried for months and months and months because Kevin Warren backstabbed George Klyovkov after that handshake, hey, we're in an alliance deal. Uh, and you're worried that he's going to take Oregon or you're worried that he's going to take Washington or he's going to try to take Stanford, uh, I'm here to tell you that he did not get consensus from his members on that front. And it appears to me 
that he may have ticked some people off on Media Day last July when he said, hey, we're not done. We're going to expand. You know, uh, we, uh, we're not going to expand just to expand, uh, as he noted. But Kevin Warren said this at Media Day. And regarding expansion, I get asked every single day, what's next? It may include future expansion, but it will be done for the right reasons, at the right time, with our student-athletes, academic and athletic empowerment at the center of any and all decisions that we will make regarding any further expansions. We will not expand just to expand. It will be strategic. It will add additional value to our conference, and it will provide a platform to even have our student-athletes be put on a larger platform so they can build their careers, but also that they have an opportunity to grow and learn from an education and from an athletic standpoint. Now, those comments were not met with enthusiasm by every member of the Big Ten Conference. You can imagine that if you're Iowa or Purdue or Indiana or Minnesota, you're sitting around going, hey, wait a minute, you're going to, you're going to have more mouths to feed? Uh, you know, no, we're not on board with that. If we're uh, if we're taking a uh, a poll of hands here in the room, and uh, I think ultimately what Kevin Warren was running up against in the Big Ten Conference were a couple things. One, this is a conference that had gone three decades with Jim Delaney as its commissioner. He was tough. He was fair. He was viewed as a person who was deeply connected with the campuses. Um, you know, he had secured uh, very lucrative media rights deals, but not on the scale of what we see in today's college world, but the uh, the entities in that conference were used to dealing with someone whose handshake they could trust. And I think when Kevin Warren got out over his skis on 60 Minutes and on HBO Real Sports and his interview with Sports Business Journal and all the stuff that uh, Carrie Cecil was was uh, you know providing, all the platforms that she was providing him with, I think that uh, Kevin Warren said some things that the rest of the conference wasn't comfortable with. I don't think the Big Ten was interested in keeping him long-term. I think they kind of looked around and went, hey, you want to go to the Bears? Go ahead. He was not extended uh, an offer. They did not try to match. They just let him go. I find that very interesting. Is college athletics better off today than it was three years ago when Kevin Warren took the job in the Big Ten conference, became the commissioner, ushered in this era of – Hey, we're going to chase new revenue. We're going to expand. We're going to we're going to forget tradition, forget 100 years of UCLA and USC and the Pac-12. We're going to put them in the Big 10 because hey, we've got LA's media market now. Fox is going to love that. Is it better off now than it was before? Of course not. We've lost tradition. We've lost momentum. People are anxious. The playoffs expanding to 12 teams, but nobody's quite sure how that's going to work out. The Big Ten Conference members are feeling great about themselves, but nobody really knows if UCLA or USC traveling all the time in non-revenue-generating sports across multiple time zones is going to work out. It could be a monumental disaster. But Kevin Warren is going to be laughing all the way to his new stadium in Chicago. I don't think college sports is better off. I think it's just richer we got a great show for you today. Michael Meek will be joining us, University of Portland women's basketball coach. We're going to take a deep dive on the NFL playoffs. We'll visit the Bay Area where the Seahawks and the 49ers are planning to play this weekend. We'll talk about Tom Brady. Is this it for Tom? 
And one upset. We're all going to pick one upset in the NFL playoffs this weekend. What's your upset? I'll ask you later in the show. Leave it here. you got the BFT statewide. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Our next guest is the head women's basketball coach at the University of Portland. Michael Meek's done a terrific job. Uh, you know, he was at George Fox before in the, uh, I guess, the path laid out by Scott Ruick. He's now at the University of Portland. He's taken his team to the NCAA tournament. He's got a big, big game coming up this weekend. Michael Meek joining us now. How are you, Coach? Good, John. Thank, yeah, thanks for having, having me on today. Just really excited about the game on Saturday for sure. Yeah, you guys on Saturday, huge game. Uh, Gonzaga coming to town Saturday, 5 o'clock. Uh, you're undefeated. They're undefeated in league play. Uh, you're hoping for a big crowd. Like, make an appeal. Let's make an early appeal, and then uh, and then we'll do it again later in the interview. But, you know, why should people come check this game out? Well, I just think, you know, having a, having a, a University of Portland and just the the local draw, uh, I think, you know, obviously Gonzaga has a rich tradition in basketball in general. Um, and, I, you know, honestly, I just think we, we play an exciting style. We have kids that just really play hard and put their heart and soul into it and, and put their heart and soul into each other and just the way, you know, the, the team shares the ball and, and, and plays together. I just think I think it's a, an awesome team to watch play. And, uh, you know, and, 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 and honestly, just have an environment like that just changes the – the whole dynamic of a game and having that kind of support behind our kids and um, in, in athletes, you know, I, I just know that it would mean a lot to them. And, and they're either, I know they're excited about the opportunity that they've earned to have at this point. You got Haley Andrews who, uh, you know, is coming off an ACL injury, uh, but um, is looking good out on the court. What are you getting out of Haley? Oh, Haley's been awesome. You know, like, She's such a fearless competitor, and, and, you know, I think obviously last year we had a, a big win over, I think, uh, BYU at the time that was ranked 11th in the nation, and, uh, you know, right before halftime she, she tore ACL, and, uh, you know, there was just never a doubt in my mind that she would, you know, come back and, and battle back because of the fearlessness she has. I mean, she, she had so many big shots in the tournament the year that we won the West Coast Conference Tournament, and, um, she's been awesome. I mean, she just flat out just does so many things, leadership quality and work ethic and uh, basketball IQ and a coach on the floor. And, uh, you know, and then statistically it's just she's one of a few kids that, you know, has had seasons of averaging over 14 a game, over five assists and over five rebounds. So you just don't see that. I think Caitlin Clark and Sabrina are the only two that have had seasons like that over the last few years. So, uh, she's just a special player for us, and you know, it's been awesome to have her back. And, and obviously, we're on a we're on a good roll right now with having her back. You know, this debate came up on yesterday's show. We were talking about coaching, and how much you know when we say someone's a good coach, or you know maybe they're maybe they're an average coach, or you know how much of the how much of the recruiting element is included in your mind when you talk to other coaches, or when you talk about other coaches. Um, you know, how do you factor in, hey, hey, that person can really recruit when you're talking about a great coach? You know, I, that's, a, that's a good question you got there. You know, I, 
you know, I, I think in respect to our program, I just think that we work so hard for, you know, recruiting quality of players, but also people and people that, you know, care about, you know, each other's experience. And, uh, you know, I'm proud of the team we have. I'm, I'm proud of the fact that they had a, a 3-6-1 GPA this term. I'm proud of the fact that, you know, we had all 13 scholarship kids return. Uh, you know, we don't. We're not a team that, you know, we have a couple good transfers. We didn't have anybody new this year. I mean, we're we're just, you know, kind of doing it the way that we're building from freshmen up. And, um, you know, and I think a lot of that just comes from the quality of kids that we're recruiting and the type of teammates they want to be and, and maybe more than anything about the experience that they want to create for one another. And to me, that that's kind of the big thing I, I think our staff really tries to help our team with is, the care for that because you know you're you're loving what you're doing you know i think you just get more out of people right so truth uh michael meek with us university of portland women's basketball coach i know you have kind of an international flavor on the roster as i look at it but i noted that you signed and got commitments from a couple of local kids one from clackamas one from beaverton how important is it for you to you know obviously you want the best players possible can't have just hey this is a local team and we're going to get our teeth kicked in. So what's the right blend for you when you look at that? You know, I, I mean, I just I love the fact that we're starting to get more excitement locally, right? And and I think, you know, we, we didn't necessarily have a tradition when, when we first got there, and I think we're, we're, you know, rapidly building some tradition and some confidence in what we're doing. And, you know, so to, to – you know, to sign two of the better kids out of Oregon, one being the Oregonian player of the year, you know, that, that's a, that's a great step forward for us. And, um, you know, at the same time, we just like to talk to our four, just want good people, you know, people that they care about one another. And, uh, so, you know, I, I definitely know we're, you know, in the right direction and, um, you know, great things are happening. And, um, and, and, and at the same time, like I'm excited about the team we have and excited about bringing in some great or, you know, Oregonians as well. We're talking to Michael Meek, University of Portland women's basketball. Again, they play on Saturday at home, big game, undefeated Gonzaga against undefeated University of Portland uh, in conference, big conference game. Give me an idea. Um, you know, I know with the NBA we look at like 25 games. We need to see that. I know in baseball that teams like to see about a month. In the NFL, you need three or four games. How many games do you need to see? before you know, hey, I've got something here? Because clearly uh, this is a team that can play. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, just knowing that we had, you know, the, the core of our team returning, I think, in itself, like, uh, made everyone, I think, have a lot of confidence in, in one another. And knowing that, you know, we still have five kids returning that played, you know, four years ago or three years ago on the on the, on the the our first year. So, you know, a lot of them were freshmen. We saw five kids off that team that won the West Coast Conference Tournament. So, you know, I think we're, we're you know, adding to that. Um, you know, I think we have a, a lot back. I, you know, I, I knew with Haley being back, you know, out early that in, in the in the schedule that we set up, kind of thinking she was going to be there, um, you know, we were going to be, you know, in for some things that was going to be tough early on. But, man, we, we just – we've built so much experience from that and confidence in other kids and depth and – uh, and, and, you know, we changed a few things I think that has helped as well. And, um, and, and, and then just getting a player back like Haley, I think, in itself, just from that leadership and, and toughness and being through it before. Um, and I feel like we're, we're in the, 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 the best spot we've been. And, um, 
you know, to play a 6-0, and uh, you know, Gonzaga team, and we're 6-0 and at Portland. I mean, that's a, that's, that's a start to a great season, and but, you know, our goals have always been for March, and, uh, you know, right now we're just shooting for to, to try to win the league championship, and, and we obviously know that this game is going to go a long ways in deciding at least who's ahead at this point of the season. You, uh, you're winning despite not having your center in the last seven yeah. games. Led the nation yeah. in blocks last season. Uh, when do you get uh, Lucy back? Well, we're hoping soon. I mean, she's starting to, you know, move around. She looks good. She looks strong. Um, you know, like you said, I mean, she's such she, – she led, like you said, the, the nation in block shots, I think, um, per game, right around four a game. And just her ability to protect the rim, she's an – elite passer for a center um and you know it's been awesome seeing other kids step up and, and do some great things but it's it's definitely going to be nice to have her back and um whether it's this weekend or not i think the train staff still trying to work out what's going to be the safest and best thing for her but we're, we're definitely going to get her back soon and we're, we're really excited about that as well you guys uh, got a chance to see stanford early in uh, mid-november and yeah. You know, we know now this is one of the best teams in the country, but what is Stanford doing? And, and do you see them as a legitimate Final Four-type team? Could they win it all? How good is that Stanford team that you played? Wow, they're so good. They're so deep. They're so well-coached. They're so, they're so physical. Um, you know, they just they, – they really have. I, I think them in South Carolina, who they, you know, lost to in a – I think it might have even have been an overtime game or, or you know, game that went down to the wire. I mean, those those have really been the two teams. But uh, there's definitely other teams that could step up into that category. And um, but they're they're definitely a special team. And um, and you know, again, another team that has a lot back, a lot of their core kids back from a team that won a national championship just a few years ago. So um, you know, it was a, a great opportunity for us to play them early and. Um, you know, and get, give some other kids some experience, but they're, they're definitely a great team. I just want to encourage our listeners. You know, last weekend, uh, my wife and I took the – we have two younger daughters who we took to just go see Warner Pacific play, and I thought it was good for them to, you know, see women on the basketball court playing a basketball game. And, uh, you know, we're looking at this weekend's game and another great opportunity to see a higher level of basketball, and it's right here in our backyard. Yeah. So – Great family event, portlandpilots.com slash tickets. If you want to get tickets to see Gonzaga play the University of Portland, again, both teams are 6-0 and in conference play. Should be a great game. Uh, you know, what do you tell your team in front of a big one like this? Because there is a little bit of worry that everybody plays tight or tries to do too much. Or, you know, what do you, how do you sort of manage that? Well, I think, you know, we've had some great opportunities to, to, to you know, to play a Stanford team and to play an Oregon team and, you know, and, and, and to add some players, you know, some experienced players to the core group that, that got that experience. Um, but, you know, we've always just tried to do what we can to focus on ourselves. I mean, our, our goal remains the same, and that's to be the best version of ourselves and um, to focus on the things that we can control, the effort, the communication, the being a great teammate, the, you know, the, the lifting each other up all the time, like that, those type of things, I think just go so far in, in a great season. And uh, I, I do think this group has been really good about taking one game at a time and taking one practice at a time. And um, so, you know, you, I mean, you've heard this a lot in other sports, but we don't really pay that much attention to who we're playing. I know the kids will be out for it because of, of the magnitude of the game. Um, 
but I think our goal is still the same, and that's to come out and be the best version of ourselves. And I really feel like that that's why we were able to win a championship early on is, you know, we just didn't worry about who we were playing. Even even early on where, you know, we hadn't had a lot of championship experience, it, it was never it was never about that. It was about just being the best we could be together, you know, and I, I think that in itself is that will be our goal Saturday night. Six and zero in conference play, twelve and five overall. University of Portland on Saturday at home against Gonzaga. Check that out. Uh, tickets start at five bucks. Five o'clock start. Mar- uh, Michael Meek, thank you so much for joining us and uh, letting us know a little bit about your team. Awesome, John. Thank thank you for everything. Take take care and good luck to you this year too. You too. All right, I'll catch you down the road. Uh, there's Michael Meek. Hey, th- this is a program that is playing at a high level, and they're running into a Gonzaga team on Saturday at home, also playing at a high level. Should be a great game. These two teams have blown out the competition uh, in through six conference games, and, you know, it, it's it's still a long road. They'll play twice before the end of the regular season. But uh, this is round one, and this is the home game for the uh, Pilots. So check that out. If, uh, if you're up for something on Saturday, bring the whole family. Five bucks to get in, and uh, Michael Meek and the Pilots will show up to play. I want you to leave it here. The BFT is statewide. We'll talk NFL coming up. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. NFL uh, full slate on the wild card weekend. Of course, the uh, top seeds are off. So you'll get no Chiefs, you'll get no Eagles, but the NFL is going to run wild this weekend uh, as people sort of look at uh, what's going to happen. I want to talk a little bit about the underdogs in this segment. Uh, I want Stephen and Peter to kind of look around and you tell me, and uh, tell me if you have to pick an underdog to win a game this weekend, where are you going? And let's go game by game if you guys don't mind. On this wild card weekend, Seahawks are at the Niners. Niners are currently a 10-point favorite. Guys, I, I don't think Seattle can get to 14 or 15 points in this game. I think they're going to score something like 10 to 13 points. I think the 49ers will be in the high 20s or low 30s. I don't think this one's close. I don't, I, you know, I know some Seahawks fans are talking about, hey, this is a good matchup for your team. I don't think so. I don't see it. I think the Seahawks are just happy to be there. I agree with you, John, um, and the weather is supposed to be pretty terrible uh, down there in San Francisco for that game on Saturday. Um, you know, you talk about upsets. Like, this is one of the games where I don't see an upset at all. Like, I think it's going to be really tough for the Seahawks to get a win in this game uh, at all. I think the 49ers uh, are just the much better team, and I've questioned Brock Purdy throughout this run, but this is a game where I think San Francisco can just line it up and run the football every single time if they want to with McCaffrey and Mitchell. And that's all they got to do just to get the win. So I, I'm with you. I think the 49ers get the win. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if it's just like the game in Seattle where Seattle actually would cover the game, but I, I find it very hard uh, that Seattle or Seattle would get this win. Yeah, yeah. The, you bring up the style of play. I, I think if the Niners were 
a pass-first team, I would go, oh, upset weather, but you're right. I think they're going to want to run the ball. Peter, how do you see it? Yeah, I see it uh, pretty much the same way. I guess you can say it's really difficult to beat a team three times in one year, but, man, it's going to happen here. And and to me, McCaffrey is the difference. I know George Kittle has gone crazy on the Seahawks in the two games they've played, but you look at the weather, you look at the running back, you look at the defense, I just can't see it. I'm kind of looking at the total in this game. It caught my eye because I, you know, obviously uh, if you are a Niner fan, you're looking at this game going, okay, you you know, you don't want weather to get too crazy, but the total's 42. And I, and I really do think that there's a chance that Seattle is somewhere around 10 points in this game just based on how they play. Uh, does it give you uh, – does it give you any kind of, uh, you know, intrigue when you see a number like 42 and you see terrible weather on the horizon? Yeah, under under is the way to go for me, and I think this has a lot of vibes to uh, the December 15th, 15th game, like I said, in Seattle. San Francisco mm-hmm. dominated that game throughout the entire game. The final score was 21-13. Like, it was a yeah. low-scoring game, and Seattle would still cover that 9.5 that I just said, that, or 10, whatever it is, and I agree with you, like, Brock Purdy didn't have to do much in that game. Christian McCaffrey, 26 carries. I think it's a lot like that. And with the weather is supposed to be, I think it's going to be low scoring, but San Francisco can get the win easily. Chargers are at the Jaguars uh, on uh, uh, in the other game I want to look at first. I'm just going down the line here. Um, you know, the, the Jags are sitting at plus two and a half. Chargers are a dog in this game. I, I actually think the, the Chargers are going to uh, win this game. Now, I've seen the spread change uh you know i've seen this uh as much as one and a half as much as two and a half i don't know where it's going to land but i like the chargers to win i'm going to disagree with you on this one i think uh i think i'm going to go with the jaguars and mostly just because of the coaching i really think brandon staley not a great coach i was intrigued by the hire when they hired him uh but he's really done nothing to prove he's a good coach and i think the final week week 18 when he's out there playing his starters Basically, the entire game with nothing on the line really proved it for me that he doesn't know what he's doing. And Doug Pearson, uh, Super Bowl winning coach, I think this game, uh, I think there's supposed to be a lot of fireworks. Like forty, It's 47.5 is the total, high total. I actually like the under this one because Herbert and Trevor Lawrence, both talented, but both young quarterbacks, first playoff game. I could see some nerves in this one. Uh, but I do think the Jaguars get it done. Yeah, to me, it depends on if Trevor Lawrence is limited. I saw about an hour ago, he's questionable for this game. With it. He's dealing with a toe issue. I would imagine he's going to do everything he can to get out there. But if he's not able to move around, if he's hampered a little bit, I mean, that doesn't bode well for Jacksonville. Let's move on. Let's go to the next game. Buffalo, Miami, Dolphins traveling to Buffalo. Uh, Buffalo's a 13-point favorite in the game. I, I just I, I love Buffalo in this game. I think they win it. I think they probably cover. Uh, I just think they're too much for Miami. I mean, if it's Skylar Thompson, how does Miami <laughs> score, right? Like you talked yeah. about what Seattle's, you know, what are they going to get, 10 to 13, 14? Like what are the Dolphins going to get with a rookie, Skylar Thompson, who hasn't done anything? I'm with you. Uh, we've talked about Buffalo being a team of destiny. I don't know that they need the team of destiny tag for this one, uh, but I do like the Bills to win and cover. Let's go to the Giants and Vikings. Giants traveling to Minnesota. Uh, the Vikings uh, are a three-point favorite in this game. Uh, this one's interesting because I, I actually think, like, if we're looking at underdogs winning, Giants would have to be uh, one of the teams that you consider, just given how, you know, even these teams have appeared at different times. Um, look, I'll take the Giants. I don't have a great feel for this game. 
But uh, I just, you know, I'll, I'll take the Giants. I think I like the way they finished the season. And to your point, Stephen, I think they managed the final week of the season pretty well. I, I've gone back and forth in this game all week long. These, these teams just played a couple weeks ago um, in December, and the Giants lost by three. Vikings won. But the Giants outgained the Vikings by almost 100 yards. I think, I think I'm going to go with the Vikings, but I don't feel good about it all. This is the one game I really have no idea about <laughs> because I don't think the Vikings are very good, but I think the Giants aren't great either, right? Like, I don't think Daniel Jones is a great quarterback. I don't think they have a lot of options on the offensive side where, you know, the Vikings at least have Justin Jefferson, Dalvin Cook. I've seen Kirk Cousins win a playoff game before in New Orleans. I think I'm going to go with the Vikings, but I feel uh, not great about it. Yeah, I think I'm going with the Giants on this one. I'm with you. Like, if you're 13-4, and four, you're 13-4. and four. But we talked about it yesterday. Negative point differential this season. Kirk Cousins win it matters. I'm never taking that bet. Uh, I'm going with the Giants. Let's move on. Ravens are at the Bengals. Uh, the Bengals are now a nine-and-a-half-point favorite. Uh, Ravens look like they'll be without Lamar Jackson. He's tweeted out. He's just not ready to go. Uh, Cincinnati's just the better team. I think you have to take them. I agree. I uh, you got to take Cincinnati, but I think uh, I think the Ravens can keep it closer than the nine and a half. I, I'm hoping to get a ten in this one and take the Ravens. Uh, you know, I trust John Harbaugh and that staff, especially when it comes to the playoffs. And I know Lamar's going to be out, but it looks like Tyler Huntley should play, so it's not going to have to be Anthony Brown. If it's Anthony Brown, I think that's a whole different story. But at least Tyler Huntley. Uh, a little more of a veteran. I think I would like the Ravens plus the points, but Bengals to win. Yeah, I'm feeling good about the Bengals to cover this. And I'll be honest, the only reason I'm really going to watch this is if Hundley can't go. I want to see Anthony Brown there out on the field. <laughs> Monday night, uh, Cowboys are at the Buccaneers. Tom Brady getting points at home. Dallas, clearly the better team, right? Dallas is a two-and-a-half-point favorite playing at Tampa Bay on Monday. I'm really curious just to see what Tom Brady can do in this game. I think the Cowboys are, are far more equipped, but I, for some reason, I don't trust the Dallas Cowboys. Maybe it was last week watching them against Washington. Wasn't a good performance. Uh, I don't love the Dallas Cowboys here, but I think they're the better team. I think they probably win this game. I just don't think Tampa's got the offense against that Dallas defense. I love Dallas in this game. I don't know why I think that might be bad, but we talk about the Vikings, their point differential. The Bucks are minus 45 on the season the second lowest scoring offense in the NFC. Like they have not been good on the offensive side of the football. Dallas, on the other hand, outscoring their opponents 125 in the point differential, you know, 467 points, second most in the NFC. I think this has the potential to be, you know, a double digit win for the Cowboys on the road. I just don't think the Bucks have it this year. Uh, the supporting cast around Tom Brady isn't great. Yeah, I mean the Cowboys are the far superior team, but I've, I'm I'm not betting against Tom Brady. If he loses this game and he comes back, maybe I'll dip my toe into betting against him. But I've learned my lesson too many times. <laughs> I'm saying the Bucks are going to win it. Yeah. Ooh, the Bucks at home getting points. Uh, yeah. Peter's calling a shot. Uh, all right. So that's your underdog pick. You're picking the Bucks yeah. over the Cowboys, Stephen. You have to pick an underdog to win. You know, I would lean New York Giants. Uh, you know, they're a three-point underdog against Minnesota. Uh, I will lean New York Giants because I just like some of their playmakers. Who Pick an underdog upset. Yeah, I'm going to go with the Jaguars. Uh, I think it's just a, it's a mismatch in the coaching coaching world here with Brandon Staley and Doug Peterson. So I'm going to go with uh, Doug Peterson, Super Bowl winning uh, coach and the young team and the Jaguars. Feeling themselves a lot lately, been on a real hot streak. I think the Jags going to win. I want you to leave it here. Tweet at me. Give me your upset pick of the weekend, the NFL weekend. 
You can find me at John Canzano BFT on Twitter. Coming up at 4 o'clock, we'll visit with Dieter Kurtenbach. He works for the Bay Area News Group and KNBR in San Francisco. We'll dive a little deeper on the Niners-Seahawks game, and uh, we'll talk a little bit of Warriors with Steph Curry uh, warming up and back in action. How, how good are the Warriors? Dieter Kurtenbach coming up at 4 o'clock. Leave it here. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Peter tweeted out a hell of a story this morning. Scared me. Excuse me, Stephen, not Peter. Peter, you also tweeted, I'm sure. But uh, the pickleball story. Stephen, what are you trying to do? You don't want me to play pickleball, do you? Yeah, it seems like it's a dangerous game. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just watching out for everybody. <laughs> Apparently, public service. Uh, the, the New York Post uh, reporting that uh, Joel Heintrich, who is 35 years old, who uh, lives in Missouri, uh, apparently was out there playing a regular game of pickleball, nothing strenuous, father of four, registered nurse. He plays several times a week. Uh, picked up the hobby a few years ago. Uh, apparently uh, he tore a neck artery and suffered three strokes, all because he turned his head too quickly while playing pickleball. I, I, I'm walking around today going, I don't turn your head fast. Nice and easy there, J.C., uh, but apparently, um, he uh, he said his vision changed. He had vertigo. He said he had to be helped over to the bench. Uh, he was vomiting. Uh, this is the New York Post, though, and I'm kind of wondering if they, you know, you guys think they're just seizing on the pickleball popularity, and they're just, you know, this is kind of like the National Enquirer here. I do a little bit, unfortunately. Um, I did want it to be real because then we'd have, then we could talk about, you know, safety precautions to the pickleball court. <laughs> Uh, what rules need to be put in place, you know, just like uh, targeting in college football, what needs to be put in place for pickleball to be more safe. Um, but, yeah, it's I think it's a dangerous sport. It's a dangerous sport. It's you a man's game. you got to have a gladiator <laughs> mentality. You better do some neck exercises before you go out there to play pickleball. Um, I got I, Look, I, this sport has – it's a craze, right? And, and part of the appeal of pickleball is that if you are seven, you can play the game. If you are 70, you can play the game. And I think it, you know, and I've, you know, done research on how it was, where it started. It started in Washington. That's where they invented it. So, you know, we're in the Pacific Northwest. We should own this thing. But the fact that this dude, and they call him in the second paragraph of the story in the New York Post, they said he's super fit. Like, super fit dad is lucky to be alive after tearing a neck artery and suffering throats, all because he turned his head too quickly. Guys, be careful this weekend when you're in the living room watching your NFL games. Do not turn your head too quickly. Uh, freak injury, but still gives you pause there. Um, what do you guys make? You know, I, I mentioned the, the other day on the show that there's a lot of uh, angst in the community that I live in. Not far from our house, there's a pickleball court, and the, it's in a park, and the neighbors are all upset over the noise. Um, I'm finding out this is going on. This kind of debate is happening across the country. This isn't isolated to Oregonians who are upset at the sound of pickleball being played. Apparently, all over the country, you've got city council meetings, special meetings, parks and rec involved. 
we got a real uh, we got a real situation on our hands. I think that probably goes into the fact that like why it's getting so popular is that like people are getting mad about it. So it's almost like uh, one of those things where you're going against the grain, you're going against the man, and you know you want to play pickleball and annoy the neighbors. I guess I don't know, man. I just. I don't get it. I'm not gonna be. I don't think I'll ever be a pickleballer. I think my wife wants to try pickleball at some point, but I will not be participating. It's fun. I think, is it? Do, yeah. do Do you guys think that it's a pleasant sound when pickleball is being being played? Mm, no. You don't no. because I I have heard from people who play. They I say, well, why don't they use a? Why don't somebody invent a ball that isn't as loud? And they say their response to that is, I like the way it sounds. They like that little. Back and forth. No, that's that's not my thing. I don't, I'm not a fan of that. I mean, like, like I love the sound of like a, a net being swished, like when you shoot the ball. Like that is great in basketball. But like the pickleball sound, it's just kind of annoying to me. It's more, uh, more just gets on my nerves. I even uh, saw a story where they brought in a sound expert to one of these meetings that was being held, like the town hall that's being held in every town in America over pickleball, and uh, they brought in a sound expert who said that the problem is it's not the sound level, it's the pitch of the ball. and It's the pitch of the sound, rather. Um, you know, when people, you know, are, are playing a piano, everybody knows middle C if you've ever had a piano lesson. Well, uh, you know, if you, if you tune a piano to middle C, it will have the pitch of middle C and then components of higher pitch sound. Well, the, it's different than like an A or whatever. And I'm not a musically inclined person. We have a piano in our household. Anna plays it. But apparently the problem as it relates to pickleball, it isn't like necessarily like, hey, turn the volume down. And that's why those sound barriers aren't working. It has to do with the pitch of whatever it is the the noise problem is created. I don't know. Peter, you're, you're our music expert. Like, you know, um, you know, this isn't like people whispering. It's not like freeway traffic because freeway traffic. I used to live by a train track, and I got to be honest with you. After like six months of living by the train track in college, I couldn't even hear the train when it came by at night. It wouldn't wake me up. But people say uh, that frequent pickleball sounds, the strikes of the ball, are higher pitched, and that's why it bothers people. Yeah, it makes sense because you get the percussive, which is generally low. But then it's it, it, there's almost a it's not a ping, but there's a little bit of that that. I, I'm not going to make the noise, but there is a little bit of a ping to it in there, and yeah, I mean, what, and what you're talking about with middle C, it's called the 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 fundamentals, and okay. y- y- where you can divide out the frequencies, and you can tell all the different little harmonics that are going to be within that. You don't get that with a pickleball, and I'm sure they could create something that would be. Even if you can't make it quieter, you can sort of change the resonance. The challenge is that to do that, well, what do you do? You either increase the the size or you can increase the mass, and that's going to affect the game. But I have a feeling, like, are we going to end up with uh, pickleball fanatics eventually dealing with tinnitus like 10 years from now? <laughs> I don't think it's going to go that far, but what, uh, like, the, the neighborhood that I live in, they installed a fence near the residential homes that are near the park, and the idea was that this fence was going to block the sound. But it's not really a sound issue because the, it's not like a decibel issue. It has to do with the pitch of the ball, and it's it's very noticeable to people. So you could use quieter paddles. You could use foam balls, I guess. You could, you could soundproof the court. Or maybe you just go, hey, we're going to regulate the hours of play, and when you move in, you better be aware that there's a possibility that there's going to be a pickleball game going on because you happen to live by a park, for crying out loud. Yeah, you don't want to affect the integrity of pickleball, John. You no. can't be changing things like this. 
put up some trees, natural tree barrier, regulate the hours of play. Shouldn't be out there playing unless, uh, you know, the first number is 7, 8, 9, 10. Should be something like that in the morning if you're playing in the morning. You know, you shouldn't be out there at like 5.30 playing pickleball, waking people up with it. But, like, even, like, look, I, I bring my garbage cans out sometimes the morning of the garbage truck. I'm that guy sometimes. And I have to carry our garbage cans kind of about 100 feet, and, and it's uphill to get it to the spot where the trucks pick it up. And I have two neighbors that are on either side of that pathway. And I, out of courtesy to those neighbors, will not, like, bring that thing up until I absolutely, like, hear the truck sometimes because I'm a, I don't want to do it at, like, 545 in the morning because I'm trying to be a good neighbor. Uh, with You know, and, and if I was a great neighbor, I would put them out the night before. But that's beside the point. But I also am thinking, like, I just wouldn't go play pickleball if I'm in a residential area at like eight o'clock and seven o'clock in the morning, I'd be like, let's go at two p.m. Does anybody have a problem with that? I don't know. Maybe they do. But that's Coming like during up, the summer. Yeah. Oh, because during the summer, like when people mow their mow the lawn, they want to get yes. it done when it's not as hot. So you want to play pickleball when it's not you know 100 degrees out. One time I remember, I think it was when our eight-year-old was just a newborn, and newborn parents, Stephen, you know this, Peter, you know this. You're like, you like, you you get a little weird. Your kid's napping. You don't want anybody to make a noise, especially with that first baby. And you don't want anybody to make a noise. You're very like, everybody quiet. Baby's asleep. And we had uh, we had a guy in the neighborhood who had one of those leaf blowers. And it was the kind you wear on your back. And way too much leaf blower for the amount of leaves that he had in his, in his yard. But he'd crank that thing up at like 6.30 in the morning mm. on a weekend. And I came out. One morning, I was in shorts and a T-shirt and flip-flops, and I walked right up to him, tapped him on the shoulder. I said, dude, it's 6.30 in the morning. What are you doing? He's like, I'm sorry. I've been up for a while. I go, the baby's sleeping, man. The baby's sleeping. you got to be a courteous neighbor is what I'm saying. All right, leave it here. Dieter Kurtenbach coming up. Uh, KNBR and the Bay Area News Group, he's got some strong opinions about this weekend's NFL action, including the Niners-Seahawks game. Plus, he's been all over – Steph Curry and the Warriors are, you know, how good are the Warriors going to be this season? Dieter Kurtenbach will be joining us to talk about it. I want you here for it. If you are a NFL fan or an NBA fan, stay tuned. BFFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald faced truth. Never thought I'd be talking pickleball on this show, but here I am. Sooner or later, we'll have a benchmark. We'll be our pickleball player of the week. We'll have it all. We'll be picking upsets. Underdogs. Peter Sampson is minus two against Steven. Oh, I think you're Saturday's okay. match. <laughs> What's the money line? <laughs> Whatever our next, free money, our next guest, I don't know if Dieter Kurtenbach plays pickleball or not, but I know he writes great columns. You can read them at the Bay Area News Group. Uh, you can hear him on KNBR in the Bay Area. He's all over the Niners-Seahawks game. He's all over the Warriors and other stuff. But does he play pickleball? Dieter, are you a pickleball player? No, no, I'm not yet, though. I, I got to be honest, like, pickleball really crept up on everybody. I, I don't think it's just me. This is, there's something off about pickleball. It's some AstroTurf thing. 
How did it go from nothing to everywhere in the span of like five months in post-pandemic America? It doesn't make any sense to me. Makes no sense. Neighbors are fighting over it. The people are arguing at the park. It's too loud. Uh, you know, we got a big controversy happening in the, in the suburbs. Uh, Dieter, uh, I got to ask you, in your world, uh, let's talk weather first of all. My parents live south yeah. of San Jose. They live down in Gilroy where the uh, Highway 101 got, you know, washed away and closed down. And what's going on with the weather in the Bay Area? It's mucky. It's bad. And if you're near the coast or you're up in the North Bay right now, you're just getting drenched. Um, it, it is the feast and famine world of California these days. You go months without any rain, and then when the rain comes, it does not relent. Uh, you know, I've been lucky where I live outside of Oakland to, to be in a, a pretty stable condition, but it looks like it's going to be real nasty down in Santa Clara, which is just north of San Jose. Uh, for Saturday's football game, it looks like there's going to be 25-mile-per-hour winds and that there will be a good portion of this game played in what could be some pretty heavy rain. And that's we're all getting used to it around here. Just this is the way the weather is during the winter, I suppose. But uh, it could be some pretty nasty stuff to play football in. Dieter, help me out here. You know, when you get that kind of weather, is that advantage Seahawks, advantage Niners? Is it a neutral advantage? How do you see that? I think it, it's an advantage to whomever is best at playing close to the line of scrimmage. And I, I think that's still the Niners in this case. You could perhaps give some credit to the Seahawks in that category because they do play in bad weather far more frequently. But the Niners have played in a couple of nasty games this year. I don't know if they necessarily uh, want to put those games up as their <laughs> testaments to greatness, but they, they have battled some elements. I just think it comes down to who can run the ball better. It might be overly simplistic, but if you're going to go 25-mile-per-hour wins, it's about who can actually get five yards on a carry and who can you know, execute the simple pass game. You're not going to be able to push it down the field. Field goals are going to be an absolute crapshoot. I just think that the Niners being 10-point favorites, it would lend – I, I tend to believe that that has to have something to do with the trenches, offensive line, defensive line, and just being able to move people. I, I don't see much of a matchup there from Seattle's perspective that they can beat the 49ers when it gets down and dirty. Are you surprised by how seamless the Brock Purdy transition has been from Jimmy Garoppolo? And, and you know, has he answered all the questions, or does he need need to perform in the playoffs for people to go, okay, this team's going to be okay with him? He definitely needs to answer questions in the playoffs. Listen, he's played six games. They've been phenomenal. Uh, the confidence that he plays with permeates everybody in any building, anybody who's ever watching the game. He just looks like he's been doing this forever. And he looks like the perfect conduit to execute Kyle Shanahan's offense. But it's been six games. So what the hell do we really know about anybody after six games? Um, so I, I think that the questions will have to remain in now a, a winner-go-home scenario. As to if it was surprising to me, I think it was less surprising to me than it was to anybody else, right? Like anybody else who, who's just checking in and being like, wait, 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 who the hell is this quarterback for the 49ers? This is the third-string guy. Uh, we saw him in training camp, and it, it wasn't always pretty because he was going up against the 49ers' first-string defense, but he had some moxie to him. He had a little something that you couldn't even put your finger on. And I know that we're all paid to put our finger on it, but there was just something about him where you go, well, you can't cut that guy. And they had paid Nate Sudfeld more than $2 million to be 
Trey Lance's backup quarterback. Jimmy Garoppolo was practicing on a side field. They were trying to trade him all the way up to the day that they had to keep him or, or cut him. And uh, so it was going to be Trey Lance, number one, Nate Sudfeld, number two, and they guaranteed $2 million in Nate Sudfeld's contract. And then Brock Purdy was going to be a practice squad guy. The Niners drafted him so that they would have an easier time getting him to the practice squad, even though they'd have to cut him to, to get him there. And so uh, Purdy was way better than Sudfeld. It was just unquestioned. He, he kicked Sudfeld's ass in practice every single day. Uh, he had his moments against Lance. We never saw Garoppolo in that situation, but it made all the sense in the world for the 49ers to pick Purdy over Sudfeld to keep him around. And when Garoppolo ended up coming back, it made all the sense to keep three quarterbacks, which is not something that Kyle Shanahan wants to do. The kid has it. And as much as we want to you know, overanalyze the quarterback position or, or get you know, enamored by guys like Josh Allen and Patrick Mahomes who have all these physical traits that are so enviable – there is still something to be said for dudes who just have some have some moxie, some leadership, and an unrivaled amount of confidence. Brock Purdy thinks truly that he's the greatest quarterback that God has ever created. And I guess through six games, he has no reason to disbelieve that. Uh, and that confidence, again, I said it, it permeates in the way he plays. It permeates through his teammates. Just like nobody treats him, talks about him like he's a rookie. That's crazy to me because he is, but – until he really shows something that looks rookie-like, we have to go along for the ride. Yeah, we always talk about synergy between head coach and quarterback, and I saw a comment mm -hmm. from from Shanahan, I think it was on KNBR, where he was sort of saying yeah. that, you know, when I give Brock Purdy a compliment, it's very simple. Uh, if I give him a criticism, it's very simple. I don't have to go in and go, mm -hmm. hey, you've been playing really well, but here's something, you know. <laughs> yeah, they seem to have some synergy there, maybe better than Garoppolo, you think? Yeah, Garoppolo, so what Kyle wants is to be the quarterback of his own team, and that's, the case. that's been the case for a long time. Uh, Kyle still really has sort of that uh, I was robbed of football greatness mentality to him and, and sort of takes it out on his quarterbacks. And so Garoppolo, Garoppolo is all just he, – he's just the coolest dude that anyone has ever met. And that's a really positive thing to be as a quarterback – because he just was unflappable. The problem was he would also make just really dumb decisions well into his 49ers tenure. It was something when it was, you know, him just showing up. But when he's five years in and he's still making what were clearly rookie mistakes, uh, it was a big issue. He, he was not the offensive coordinator. He was just somebody out there playing quarterback. So then they went with Trey Lance, who they thought they could have it all with. They thought that they could get sort of that incredible Superman quarterback that we're seeing, obviously, in Allen and Mahomes. They thought they could get that kind of guy who also had the sort of supercomputer brain that you're looking for to be an offensive coordinator on the field. Now, I don't know if Trey Lance is going to be that guy or not. Maybe we find out next year. Maybe we never find out. But with Purdy, he, I think Kyle just – I think he has that supercomputer. Purdy is really sharp. He is picking up plays at an absurd rate. They're throwing plays at him at halftime that he's never run, that he's never heard, and he's learning and memorizing them and executing them to the, the highest ability. I mean, it's not normal for him to be able to execute this offense at the level they're asking him to execute this offense, but he can pull it off because he's so smart, and he has a little bit of scamper tool. He has the ability to extend plays. He might not be Lance in terms of the big rocket arm 
and perhaps the ability to run the ball for 100 yards in a game if he needs to, but the ability to just extend plays a little, give the wide receivers, George Kittle, a little extra chance, give you know Christian McCaffrey a, a chance to wiggle away from a linebacker, it, it just it creates first downs. First downs create touchdowns, and touchdowns win games. I, I think this guy might be the perfect mix, and it, we'll have to evaluate why the 49ers depth chart was inverted at the beginning of the year, where perhaps the, the worst quarterback that they had play for them was their starting quarterback, followed by the second best, followed by the best. But ultimately, uh, it's still an inexact science, this quarterback thing, even for a guy like Kyle Shanahan. If it was exact, it, we would be dealing with C.J. Beathard or Brian Hoyer here in the Bay Area, and instead we're on to the third quarterback this year with Jimmy Garoppolo being a constant question mark, and we don't know what the hell Trey Lance is. So uh, it, there's a lot of questions with that, but the kid, the kid has it, and Kyle seems really confident in throwing everything he has at him. That's never something he could say with Garoppolo. That's certainly not something that he could say with Lance, even though they do like Lance's uh, you know, skills between the ears. Uh, this is this is something special, and whether the 49ers lucked into it or they deserve all the credit in the world, it doesn't really matter because it's here and it's working. We're talking to Dater Kurtenbach, uh, Bay Area News Group. Uh, you can hear him on KNBR in the Bay Area as well. Uh, Dater, let me back up here because Seahawks Niners, there's bad blood historically in this rivalry, oh, yeah. and it goes way, way back. Third time they'll play this season. I have the sense that the Seahawks are just happy to be in this game based on last week's performance and you know escaping and getting into the playoffs, but is there any kind of uh, angst there in the Bay Area over seeing Seattle a third time? Not really, because Geno Smith has regressed throughout the season, and he has yet to look good against the Niners in those first two games. Uh, they absolutely dominated the first game that they played at Santa Clara, and that was the game that Trey Lance broke his ankle in the first quarter, and Garoppolo just came in and carved up Seattle. And, and perhaps that's just, hey, Jimmy's played a lot of football, and uh, you know the, 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 the drum keeps beating. But the way that Purdy was able to get, you know, throw it to guys who were absolutely preposterously open on a Thursday night, uh, the way that the 49ers were able to manhandle the Seahawks, I know the score line doesn't fully indicate it, but that was a three-touchdown game margin for most of the contest uh, until Seattle got a late one. It was, it, they just dominated them. I mean, it's to, the point, it's to the point where you're not thinking points, you're thinking how many yards can Seattle get? So, if Seattle's bringing their best in, and you'd expect them to, Pete Carroll's obviously an outstanding coach. Uh, if they bring their best in, I mean, I, I don't know how that even comes close to matching the Niners' second best, third best, you know, their BC effort. Uh, the talent disparity is just too significant between the two teams, and Geno Smith is too easily sackable for a quarterback that, that has a little bit of extended playability. He just has not been able to show it yet against the San Francisco 49ers. That pocket is collapsing instantaneously, and that gives the 49ers defense the license to just kind of do whatever the hell they want on the back end, and that, that creates turnovers and interceptions. It, it, I, I just, I've watched Geno's last eight games. Um, the book is out on them. If you, if you absolutely set the edge, and you just let your interior guys come get them, they'll get them. And the 49ers do that better than any team in the NFL, in my estimation. I just really have a hard time seeing Geno Smith putting up the kind of yards necessary to go toe-to-toe with the Niners team that apparently with Brock Purdy as the quarterback is just going to score 30 points every game now. That's just yeah. something that we now just take for granted. So uh, I, I, 
I get the third time is the hardest time or it's really hard to beat a team three times in a row, but the Niners are a 10-point favorite for a reason. I mean, they're a markedly better team. And if the Seahawks win this game, it has way more to do with the Niners absolutely soiling the bed than it does with Seattle finding some other gear that I haven't seen in weeks. You've got Philadelphia. You've got Dallas. Um, is there a matchup the Niners prefer as they advance here? Do they want to wait to play somebody, or does it matter? What are you hearing in that locker room? I, they're definitely doing the week-by-week week thing. I don't think that there's any bad blood out there that they want another shot at somebody. Something to note about the Niners. They're, they're currently favorites at a lot of odds, you know, with a lot of odds makers to win the NFC, and I get it. But they've played one of the NFL's top teams this season. It was Kansas City, and Kansas City kicked their butt up and down. Um, they haven't played Philly. They haven't played uh, the, the Buffalo Bills. They haven't really played anybody all that good and uh they have cleaned up on a lot of teams that are sort of stuck in the middle and are susceptible to to getting stomped if uh if you play the right game and credit to the Niners they played the right game uh the team that they should be worried about in my estimation and again with the NFL reseeding after every round it's really hard to sort of look ahead but the Philadelphia game I'm not high on Philadelphia as the number one seed I don't think they tackle well I think that their defense doesn't stop the run. I think those are good things for the San Francisco 49ers. Uh, And I also think they're a one-trick pony on offense where they just run that sort of RPO, triple option sort of thing where, you know, you got Jalen Hurts, he can hand it off, he can run it himself, or he can throw it to to A.J. Brown. The problem is that one trick is really, really good, and it forces teams to go into man-to-man. And I look at this 49ers secondary right now, Talanoa Hufanga, their free safety was named to the Pro Bowl. Talano Hufanga has been an absolute liability in coverage for the last six weeks. I mean, it, it's abysmal, frankly. He, he would be replaced if he hadn't put up such good numbers, such good tape in the first eight weeks or so of the season. Uh, man-to-man coverage is not the 49ers' friend. And if Philadelphia is able to do what they want to do, and that's get teams to play man-to-man, that could be a long, long, long evening for the San Francisco 49ers. But toe-to-toe, you just look at the talent. You obviously look at the scheme. Quarterback is vitally important. I guess you throw Brock Purdy in the mix and say, hey, we, we, here's what we know about him, and it's been pretty damn good. The, the Niners stack up with any team in the NFC, so I, I don't think they should be afraid of anybody. And when you're really looking for reasons not to pick them, again, you're getting into weird semantics like man-to-man stuff against RPOs. I mean, it is, it is the tiny stuff that you're really uh, picking bones with when it comes to the San Francisco 49ers. It's an excellent football team, and we'll see how it all goes because we know in the playoffs that that not everything lines up the way we initially expect. Before I cut you loose, uh, the NBA, you obviously have the Warriors there. You're all over them. Steph Curry coming back from missing 11 games. Uh, You know, this Warriors team, where they stand now, how good are they? Uh, How are they feeling? What is the atmosphere? What do you see? They're uh, in a bit of a malaise. Uh, They have not had any continuity this season, and the leadership has frankly been lacking with Curry out of the lineup. Um, They have so much talent, and there are these moments that they play, and sometimes it's five minutes, sometimes it's a quarter, sometimes it's a whole game, where you're just like, no one's beating these guys. This is the best team in the NBA They're unbelievable. They're going seven, eight deep with just crazy, absurd talent. No one's matching this. The problem is it's in spurts. And this is a team that their leadership 
over the years has figured out that you don't have to try all that hard in the regular season. So long as you put together one nice stretch in the middle, the rest of the NBA will sort of fall into line and the Warriors will get the two, three, or four seed. And they have done that time and time again as these guys have gotten older and, and played more and more playoff games. And, uh, and they've gotten away with it all but maybe once. And even for the young guys on this team who are NBA champions, they didn't really you know contribute a terrible amount last year during the playoffs. So they don't have the kind of sway to be like, hey, maybe we, we push it a little bit harder. Uh, this is a team that's kind of you know in a, in a strange spot. They're too young on one end. Maybe they're getting too old on the other end. But when it clicks, it is truly spectacular. I wish I could tell you right now, John, like, oh, don't worry, it will click around this time. I don't think anyone knows. I think everyone's optimistic that at some point they'll actually just start playing really good basketball. But, um, man, it, I, I, I can't tell you if my, my basketball season covering them is going to end in, in April or if it's going to end in the, the you know middle of June. It's just they are feast or famine like the rain here in California. It's, it's all or nothing. And, man, let me tell you, though, when it's on, when it's all on, nobody's beating that team. They are, they are so awesome. I wish we could see it more. Dieter, I appreciate you giving us some of your time, and uh, stay dry down there. I'll do my best, John. Thank you for having me. There he is from the Bay Area News Group. Uh, good stuff. Uh, we'll we'll dissect that, talk more about the NFL, and we'll pop into the studio. You got the BFT. Leave it here. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I always see these people. You know who you are. You're out walking your dogs during the day. I see you and I go, what are these people doing out walking their dogs? We got a puppy. God, how long ago did we get a puppy, Anna? Anna's popped into the studio. How long ago? How old is this puppy? How long have we had this puppy? The puppy is about three months old. We've had it uh, for a couple of months. All right. So you're out walking this dog now. Yeah. Because it's your dog. Uh-huh. You're walking it. It's what is that? dog. It's our dog. Take it. It's our family dog. Take me through the experience. What is that like? Because I see these people who are out walking their dogs. They look so peaceful. They're just kind of walking along. They got nowhere to be. It looks very relaxing and peaceful. Uh, it kind of is, you know, yeah. it's nice to get out and talk with people in the neighborhood. You'll find that fellow dog walkers are very interested in stopping to chat about your dog. Mm. What is the breed of your dog? How dog, how big will your dog be? These right. are the things that, yeah, it's exactly what I thought you guys were mm -hmm. talking about. Yeah. 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 That's how I had it. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. I had uh, one old guy pass me today and he said, handsome dog. Handsome. Handsome. Interesting. Our dog is handsome. <laughs> I'm going to gather this individual was somewhere between 70 and 120 years old who called yeah. the dog handsome. Yeah, roundabout. Yeah. Roundabout. That's not a word that um, younger folks use. Yeah. Handsome. Mm -hmm. You know, like a millennial or younger. Yeah. I don't even know what they're called, younger than that. They're not going to use, they're not going to call it handsome. No. What's the term for people who are like this current young generation? I'm. You're asking the wrong person. Okay. I don't Does know. Does it matter? Why do Gen Z, like, so my six-year-old is Gen Z. 
Well, that I mean, the, the, the oldest millennials are forty, so you've got Gen Z, and then the real young kids, like our, yeah. like uh, your six year old, my year old. I think they're Gen Alpha, is what they're being called. I think we call them YouTubers. Yeah, I'm looking it up right here. It, YouTube it, addicts. Peter's right. Gen Alpha, uh, 2013 through 2025 is Gen Alpha. Gen Alpha. So we've moved our way all the way down the alphabet, and we're starting back over at Alpha now. Does anybody know? Did we do this before the baby boomer generation? Did like people in the 1870s? Did they go? You know, I'm a, I'm a generation uh, wagon wheel. Well, did have they it, do that? I have it right here. It looks like it started <laughs> in 1901. That was called the Greatest Generation. Then you had the yeah. Silent Generation. Yeah, Tom broke on name. Then no. the Baby Boomer Generation. <laughs> the silent Generation. The Silent Char- Generation. The Charlie Chaplin. <laughs> was he there? The silent by the way, generation. I don't know why this made me think of it. Do you guys remember that movie, The Artist, that had no sound? Yes. Uh, it, you know, it was black and white, as I recall, too. Mm-hmm. I slept right through it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the um, appreciator of arts, as I, you are. I didn't know that movie was silent. Until we were in the movie, and I was looking around going, why is there no sound? That's like all the times we've ever gone to a movie, and someone hasn't done their homework, and we get in there, and we, as it starts to play, we realize there's subtitles, and we go, oh. Uh, Yeah, I don't do subtitles. We're so lazy. I'm paying for that. Put it in a language I can understand. <laughs> this might be an Oscar winner, but we don't have the energy to read during this. But you, Anna, you may remember the the uh, worst part of that movie, so The Artist. Dumb. Yeah, it was. was not only that was it in black and white and silent, but that was the movie that you brought a hamburger to. Oh, and really? And you had a really noisy package. Oh, yeah. And so it was like you were trying to open your burger. There's Anna. <laughs> You know, in row four. Discreet. And everybody's like, what is that noise going on? And I can hear you chewing in the movie. You know, it's like. Let's just say I'm not above, you know, shuttling in a little burger in my pocket into the movies. Never again would I go to a silent movie. Yeah. You know? Yeah. We're, uh. You're, you're sitting there going, we've advanced beyond this. Why are we going backwards in time? We have, we can have colorized pictures we can have sound <laughs> you know there's no orchestra playing like literally in the movie theater anymore so you know nobody's having to crank the uh the projector yeah so let's do this let's have a real movie experience i have to know you guys what are your biggest movie disappointments like movies that you've gone to see with such high expectations and then you realized like you've made a terrible mistake mm. for me that jennifer lopez ben affleck movie Geely? Geely? You actually saw Geely? <sighs> this is a really bad one. Um, I was traveling. I don't remember where I was, what year it came out, whatnot, but I was covering some kind of sporting event. Yeah. And so it's often I'll be in some weird city or maybe there's bad weather or maybe I just have nothing to do. I will go see a movie. <laughs> okay. And that's how I end up seeing, like, I saw the original Saw movie Okay. in the theater in San Antonio because the Spurs and the Pistons were playing in NBA Finals. I was covering it. And I'm in the Saw movie, and yeah. Grant Hill is in the Saw movie theater with me. <laughs> like, me and Grant Hill went to a matinee. Like, he's like three seats from me, and with a bucket of popcorn, and I'm over here going, I'm in the movie theater with Grant Hill watching <laughs> Saw. Uh, I, I wonder if I can, like, hide under his seat if it gets scary. But, but I saw Geely in that same situation, and it was so bad. I think I walked out. I'm incredulous that you you actually went to I don't remember anything about it. I just remember that it was bad. Yeah. 
Peter, yeah. Stephen, you have a bad movie experience. <laughs> Uh, I'm trying to think of one. Mostly I'm still laughing at the idea of not realizing that's a silent movie. You standing up, you're like, can, you, can anyone hear me? Am I deaf? Um, well, I thought there was a malfunction. Because, you know, like we, we've all been in a yeah. theater where, like, maybe the reel, back in the day, the reel would break. And you'd have to go, hey, hold on, we'll restart the movie. I've been in a situation like that. Yeah. Or maybe it comes on, it's too loud. Yeah. And then you see somebody get up and they go out. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden somebody turns the sound down. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, or one time we were in the theater, this happened to you and I, and the lights were on. Yeah. And nobody turned the lights off. Right. In the movie theater, and the movie's starting. Mm -hmm. And we're like, hey, you're going to turn the lights off right now. But, um, You yeah. have to be careful with movies because sometimes we'll go to one and it'll be really highly rated by critics, but you always have to check the audience score because yeah. sometimes it's so artsy that it's yeah. just too smart for us. Like that Lighthouse movie that had Willem Dafoe. Another black and white favorite of yours. It was uh, very strange. It was about the two lighthouse keepers. That movie was aggressive. <laughs> Do you remember what happened? I, I'm not gonna. I don't think I'm ruining this for anyone. If you haven't seen the movie, it's called The Lighthouse. Is that yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. Willem Dafoe and some other guy. Yeah. Stuck in a lighthouse and they just go mad together. <laughs> They're like drinking and and the one guy ends up killing the other guy and the seagulls yeah. eat his eyes. Yeah. He's incapacitated. He falls down. He's still awake, but he can't move. Critically and, acclaimed. And the seagulls eat his eyes while he's alive. That's the movie, guys. Wow. That's it. A lot of buildup. Very wow. aggressive. A lot of black and white buildup. Every time I see a seagull now, I, I guard my eyes. Yeah. I immediately put my hands up. Because I'm like, I don't know if he's, if, did he see the movie? Does he know that those are delicious treats? Let's go to Bob, who's in Milwaukee. Bob, welcome to the show. Hey, John. There is a silent movie that I know you would thoroughly enjoy. No. Mel Brooks' silent movie. <laughs> I like that. Through the whole movie. That's a mid-70s movie, as I remember. Dom DeLuise in that one? Dom DeLuise. I think Burt Reynolds. Burt Reynolds, I think, was in almost every one like that. But it was just hilarious. Everything that Mel Brooks had get in that was just spot on. Except there actually was one word spoken by Marcel Marceau. He said no. <laughs> Is it? But it. But just doesn't the movie have a soundtrack? Like it's not completely silent, right? Correct. There is music. There is uh, the verbiage, but it, it's well done. Okay. Where you can laugh and enjoy it. Yeah. Not so like the my, the only like, line, the only, <laughs> yeah, the only dialogue in the movie is from the mime. Correct. It's phenomenal. <laughs> Put it on the list. The thing that was jarring uh, to me about that artist movie was how damn quiet the theater was. I didn't know the theater sounded like that when no one was in it. I've never heard it silent. So, And then how weird it got. Like if you wanted to take a little popcorn out of the bucket yeah. or the bag yeah. and you pressure. wanted to chew it. Or the cheeseburger. You, you had to do it. You had to do it. You had to do it really quiet. Yeah. You couldn't be like... You know, yeah. like no rummaging action, around. No action scene to hide behind. Yeah. yeah. There's oh. no hiding out in that no. theater. Mm -hmm. All right, leave it here. We have much more to talk about. You got the BFT. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game.
baseball story caught my eye uh, during the commercial break. Looks like all uh, AAA ballparks in 2023 uh, will have uh, a significant implementation, a technology advancement. It is going to be an automatic ball and strike system, commonly referred to as ABS. Uh, half of the AAA games will be played with all of the calls determined by an electronic strike zone. The other half will be played with a uh, challenge system, similar to that used in tennis. So uh, they'll have a real umpire behind the plate, calling the balls and strikes, and each team will be allowed three challenges per game, with teams retaining challenges uh, when they are proven correct. The attention here is for Major League Baseball to study this, and use the data and the feedback from both systems over a full season to figure out whether or not uh, Major League Baseball will implement automatic balls and strikes in the big leagues. Now, in 2019, the Atlantic League, an independent league in minor league baseball, used electronic strike zone in an all-star game. And the Arizona Fall League has used ABS uh, in some of their games as well. I want to know how people feel about this. How do you, as a listener of this show feel about seeing uh, essentially technology take over the balls and strikes in baseball games and seemingly could it be uh, could it then take place in the NFL could you use it to spot the ball uh, could you use it in the NBA uh, you tell me how comfortable are you removing the human element when it comes to balls and strikes and other calls or where is the line for you 503-417-7575 uh, let's kick this around. And how comfortable are you, Stephen, Peter, how comfortable are you guys with balls and strikes being called by a system? I, love uh, I don't it. like it. <laughs> wait, yeah, you wait. love it? I love it. You love it. Oh, my gosh. You go ahead because I, I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, and don't get me wrong. Look, I'm a little bit skeptical about it, but I think Major League Baseball's doing this the right way and testing this over the course. You know, again, they did it last year in a couple leagues, making sure you get a full amount of data because in the NBA, there's so much gray area and things are subjective. But assuming you're measuring, you know, the top of the knees to the right point on the jersey and you're calibrating it. A ball or a strike is not, it, it is objective. It is not subjective. It is a ball or it is a strike. And, you know, you can debate, you know, when was the gather? Did he carry? You know, all those little things. Was it a foul? Was he in the shooting motion? But this, to me, it's black and white. And I'm still skeptical that it's actually going to work, but I love that they're testing it out. Oh, uh, I I don't mind the idea of it, and I, I get it. I get that it feels uh, more definitive, but I feel like baseball is such a human sport. I mean, baseball is just a series of errors and misses uh, and, and and humans trying to test their limitations. And so I feel like it uh, removes that human element. Like, I'm okay with humans making errors in baseball when they're calling strikes or balls. I don't know. I, I worry a little bit about it. Uh, look, I uh, just saw a video this morning of a Tesla that had the self-driving uh, automation that got in an accident on Thanksgiving Day on the Bay Bridge, eight-car pile-up, whatever. Technology is great until it doesn't work. And so I kind of worry about, um, you know, our need to have our sports be perfect, I think, loses some of the charm and romance of sport. 
and our need to have like every single ball and strike be you know i i do i am okay with the umpire getting most of the calls right i've talked to a bunch of umpires we've interviewed jimmy joyce a uh, longtime umpire in the show we've interviewed dale scott long time crew chief on this show and i think those guys are really good at what they do i i don't mind the challenge part but i don't want this to turn into let's remove the human element and if the ball goes through the box you win a prize you know because i just think there's some nuances to this game that you know electronic you lose some of the charm of the game that you know abner doubleday invented all those years ago I do think you could use it. I I want it more selfishly in football. I want it. You know, why are we still casually marking the ball with somebody's foot? Somebody, you know, the guy's spotting the ball with his foot, and then they bring the chains out. I know. And then they like, like, what year is this? Like, just put a sensor in the ball. That and we know where the ball that is. That one cracks me up because it is so old school. Oh, the fact that oh, he's three a, inches short. A chain team, you know? you know. Good thing that guy was wearing a size nine shoe. And the ref just you know? puts it kind of wherever he wants to. Yeah, we've all seen it. Like I think you know, as far as advancing replay and in the NFL and in college football, like you know, I think there've been some mostly positive results. Like they're getting, they're trying to get the egregious calls right, but spotting the ball. We're still doing that? I, I agree with Peter. I like it for baseball for balls and strikes. I do think that, especially in these big-time games in the playoffs, sometimes the emotion of the umps gets in the way, and there's some egregious calls. And I understand that they do a really good job, and it's a very tough job. But I kind of do want, like what Peter said, like there is a defined strike zone. So you can define that same with if you challenge a guy if he's out at second base. You can see if he's out or safe, where in basketball or in football – you know, when it's called for penalties or fouls or carries, I don't necessarily need that because I don't want those games to necessarily be perfect because there's going to be too many calls throughout the game. Like you could call holding on pretty much every single play in the NFL, or you could call traveling or you know carrying in the NBA. That's going to just muck up the game. I think for baseball, it's not going to slow the game down, and it's going to make it so it holds the hitters more accountable as well to know what their strike zone is. Do you think that if they bring in this electronic strike zone, do you think it'll benefit hitters more or pitchers? I think it benefits the hitters because I think the pitchers will often get calls because they're throwing strikes. They'll give them the corner or they'll give them a little leeway. And I also think that some catchers, there's a handful of catchers that are just better at framing pitches that are you know that that pitchers love to throw to these guys because they're good back there. Mm-hmm. The catcher can make a big difference. We should get an umpire back, back on the show tomorrow, like Dale Scott or Jim Joyce. I'll get one of them on the show. Mm-hmm. And I, I would love to talk to them about kind of when in a game – like when you see a pitcher who's really erratic, the umpire doesn't give them anything. Yeah. Like you got to throw it over the plate to be a strike. But like Greg Maddox, Peter's guy back in the day, I don't think this thing would have been beneficial yeah. for a guy like Maddox who could paint the corner and then expand the strike zone by another inch and then expand the strike zone by another inch, and pretty soon he was getting calls that were two inches off the plate. Yeah, you you do lose that element, but I think over the course of a, a few years, you gain back the high strike, though. They never call a strike at the letters. That's a strike, John. And Tom Seaver, you know, great pitcher. He lived and died on that high 
high fastball, and he wouldn't be able to get by today. So it's going to take young pitchers time to sort of come in and develop. And, you know, batters, man, they have a hard time with that pitch, and they've learned to lay off of it. So I think you do lose, you know, the corners. You lose that advantage, but you gain a different advantage. Yeah, initially I think it's going to be tough for the hitters because they, because with all different umps, you know the style of that umpire, and then you know their strike zone, and they're all different, where now it's one uniform thing, but – like Peter said, there's going to be calls that are up that they're not used to. There's going to be calls that are down that they're not used to. I think initially the players are going to, or the hitters are going to have a little trouble with it, and then after a while they'll get used to it, and then the pitchers are going to have to adjust after that. I'm going to try to get Jimmy Joyce or Dale Scott, both umpires, on the show in the next segment. Let's see if I can do this on the commercial break. You got the BFT. Leave it here. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. All right, we wanted to get an expert opinion on this automatic ball and strike thing. I'm not totally comfortable turning over the human element of the game to a machine. Major League Baseball is going to look at what they do in AAA this year. They're putting this ABS system into uh, the AAA ballparks. Half of the teams, all of the balls and strikes will be called. The other half, they'll just kind of use it as a... Uh, replay situation you can challenge it I said let's get uh, you know a major league baseball umpire on the show and uh, you know I I reached out to Jimmy Joyce friend of this show guy uh, always uh, giving a helping hand to the BFT foundation uh, but uh, Jim Joyce uh, former major league baseball umpire a guy who uh, worked uh, for three decades Almost four decades complete uh, in baseball, calling balls and strikes. Uh, I said, let's get him on the get show. Get him on the show. And uh, Jimmy Joyce is joining us now. What were you doing when I reached out to you? Um, enjoying retired life, sitting in my chair watching television. <laughs> Sorry, man. <laughs> we're dragging okay. you into our debate. We are split as a group here on this automatic ball strike thing. Um Let's just back way up, because I know when you were umpiring, you retired in 2016, if I remember correctly. Uh, right. You know, how far on the horizon did this kind of theme, thing seem to you at that time? Oh, I did. I thought it, it was pretty much around the corner even back in 2016, because you got to remember that they incorporated the ABS system on us in 2000 and... Geez, I'm trying to think when they incorporated it. They call it the ZE system when they did it with us, and that's how they scored us, and that's how they graded us. Mm. And so um, I want to say that was probably around, oh, gosh, to, to, uh, probably 2006 or seven. they've been using it. And um, they always told us it wasn't really all uh, 100% accurate, but that's how they graded us. And they gave us a report every night after we worked the plate. I'm curious to think to, uh, what you guys think on one hand or the other. Um, like you said, John, you're not willing to, you know, hand over uh, balls and strikes to a robot. What is the, what is the argument on the other side? I think the, Peter, you want to you want to kind of give your argument, or Stephen, you want to give yeah. your argument as to why you want this. Yeah, yeah, I'll go ahead. First of all, thanks for joining us, Jim. Appreciate you uh, stepping away from the TV I for a minute. Um, 
I, I like it because a, a ball or a strike in theory is it's it's black and white. It, there's so many judgment calls in sports where it won't necessarily work, but it, it's either a ball or it's a strike, as written in the rule book. It's over the plate or it's not. It's you know it's above the knees to the letter. You know whatever the the specific rule is, and so I like turning that over. Now I'm assuming you're still gonna ha- if this change you know theoretically goes to MLB, you still got to have a home plate umpire in case the thing's completely gone off the fritz that can override it, or you know for plays at the plate. So I'm assuming there's no you know pay cuts or people losing their jobs in this scenario. But I love that it's just something that can be 100 percent accurate. Okay, and who told you that was what percent accurate? Well, I'm ass- I'm assuming that's why they're testing it is to see if it's 100 percent accurate. Okay, now what do they say about assuming? <laughs> Here, here's what here's my argument against it, Jim. I saw a video of a Tesla that was supposed to be a self-driving car stop on the Bay Bridge and cause an accident. So I don't totally trust the machines. Well, I'll be honest with you, I don't trust the machine either, and I worked under it for uh, many years, and we had an appeal system that we could look at our scores, and they also sent the video of the game with us and stuff like that, and balls that were sometimes uh, pretty close to the, to the, uh, to the dirt, uh, curveballs especially, that we didn't call strikes. The machine wanted us to call strikes, and we would get dinged on those. And so mm-hmm. what we did is we'd appeal them, front office at baseball they actually had a specific guy that would look at every uh if we appealed he would look at the appeal and it would be either denied or accepted now my my take on it is if if you want to say that it's 100 percent accurate and you can guarantee it okay but i'm going to tell you this once you get it you're never going to get rid of it so you know the devil the details here because I will tell you this, if, if you're putting the system in to correct four pitches a night, which is what the average umpire in the major leagues misses, you're spending a lot of money to get four pitches right. <laughs> now, my take on it is if you're in a situation like the World Series or uh, playoffs or even on April 4th when you start the season – if you're in the seventh inning and it's a 3-2 count, bases loaded, and the pitch comes in and the umpire, it's a one way or the other, and whatever the umpire calls, whether it's strike or ball, if you don't agree with it, challenge it. Mm-hmm. Give them more challenges, but don't put a system in that's going to call every pitch every night. The players eventually are going to hate this. Jim Joyce with us. Uh, he was an umpire in Major League Baseball. Uh, from 1987 to 2016, three times in the World Series, three times all in the All-Star Game. Uh, Jim, um, we were also talking about how good pitchers and good catchers can uh, create strikes maybe that uh, yep. are, are on the black or maybe, you know, can you talk a little bit about framing and when you, when you encountered a pitcher like Greg Maddox, a guy who could expand the strike zone? <coughs> Well, before uh, before ZE and ABS and everything like that, uh, guys like Maddox, Glavin, Clemens, Johnson, you know those guys. Those guys pitched every single night, and they knew how to pitch. Umpire, they knew umpires. They knew Jim Joyce. They knew Dale Scott. They knew John Hirschbeck. They knew Joe West. 
And as a matter of fact, a lot of them kept books on us, and they would say, okay, Jimmy Joyce calls high and low, but he's tight on the corners. Um, just being facetious because I was never tight on the corners. But they, they used to do their job on this. I don't know what your guys' opinion on this is now, but players today on the offensive side of this game are standing in the box waiting for the perfect pitch because the umpires right now have never been more consistent in any time in the game of baseball. These guys have been have been trained to do this by this machine, and I'm sure you guys saw during the World Series, Pat Holberg apparently called the perfect game. That's right. Now, I'm not – I'm not above perfect games, as you guys know. So, um, but anyway, Pat supposedly didn't miss a pitch. These guys are getting better; they're not getting worse. And yeah. I don't understand why the big debate over this is. We're talking about four to maybe six pitches a game, and where some of those four to six pitches games are not in critical situations; they're just yeah. at an average at bat. Yeah, I, th- now, I, if you want I, to I make, like trying to make it. Go ahead. I, I'm sorry. I like. I gotta get to. I gotta get to break. But Jim, I like your idea of having a challenge instead of going wholesale. I agree. It, yeah. it, it would make things a lot easier and a lot more simple. And you still yeah. keep the human element to a certain yep. degree All in right. the game. And I gotta run, a lot Jimmy. More things that play. Go ahead. We gotta run to break. I appreciate you making time. Thank you. B F F T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald faced truth. I'm telling you, like the Rolodex of this show, deep. When we say. Get him on the show. That, when we say that, we we mean it. Okay, around here? Yeah? Yeah, now why are you laughing? There's no tomorrow with you. Just right now. That's right. Well, I don't want to wait till tomorrow to hear what Jim Joyce has to say. No. I, don't, I want to know if he changed Peter's mind at all. No. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but can we just, can we say this? I'm okay with it, the system being there, but let's have it. You get three challenges in a game. You think I missed three calls, then you challenge and we review it. But, but don't you think I, that's going to slow the game up too much? Don't you think it's the... I, I, I talked to Jim during the commercial break. He says this is going to ruin baseball because he says that machine is not perfect. But he he said they're training under the machine and got better. So the machine has a more accurate rate than the umpires do because under that system, they got better. No, he said they they missed four pitches a game, and he said... Yeah, yeah. it's between 8 and 14 according to the the big data. I think you're going to have problems. Let's see where they land. I, I'm going to get. I'm going to bet that the minor leaguers hate it, and I'm going to bet that it uh, misses calls. It's not consistent enough. He said they're talking about 2024 instituting it. I think they'll end up with the challenge situation instead of it calling every pitch. I can live with the challenge because if somebody just blows a call, fine. But in the course of a game, like, you know, if it's 3-2, he gave that scenario, seventh inning, bases loaded. You know, let's say it's a ball. It's ball four. You walk in a run. Big rally happens. If you could challenge that pitch and get it called a strike and the machine says, hey, that was a strike, the umpire missed it, I can live with that. But I don't want us to be sitting here every pitch going, well, the machine did the machine get that right or did it miss that curveball in the dirt? 
I, I, but I'm kind of doing that anyway with the human. So look, and and again, even though I'm for it, I said at the beginning I'm skeptical that it can work, which is why. At the you know the the top of all of this, I'm glad that they're testing it out for a full season in the minor leagues plus what half a season before. You got to make sure it works. But the assumption, uh, if you can get to say you know 98, 99 percent accuracy, I love the idea. If it doesn't work, I mean you can't do it. You can't ruin the game. But I have a feeling it's going to work. They're already 98 percent accurate. I'm I'm showing Are 95. I don't know. I'm just I, I and I, I agree with Joyce too because it's interesting with that system now. You have seen the umpires tighten up that strike zone a little bit. Be curious to see. Now, can we agree that it should be in the football on down and distance? Like, what are we doing? Yes. What are we doing? Employing people who are on the chain team. Anna, you put a GPS tag on our dog. I know. Can we not put one on the ball? <laughs> We have one dog who is an escape artist. (laughs) It's just, I, I, you know, I was watching the Oregon Oregon State game this year. There was a terrible call. I happened to be in the press box at Research Stadium in the makeshift press box, and you know, it's uh, Oregon State's trying to get that first down, and the ball happened to be almost exactly in line with my seat. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The first down that they needed was almost exactly in line. I think they needed to get to like the five yard line. I was right on the on the ball marker. And they hand the ball off to Damian Martinez. He goes over the line right in front of my eyes. And I watch where the guy's spotting. The guy who was spotting was down in the end zone. He came running back towards the five yard line to spot the ball. He had a horrible angle. I was like, I have a better angle than you. <laughs> and and I think, you know, they reviewed it and still didn't overturn it. Not that it impacted the game. But it was just one of those moments where I'm like, why are we still doing this with a chain? You know? And a, and a dude's foot. And if it's really close, they get out a piece of paper. Yeah. <laughs> right. They do not. They what? They do, yeah. They yeah. Get a like piece a note, of it's like a note card. It's like a note card. What? See if the nose of the ball made it to the edge of the chain. I did not know but the that. funny thing is, like, we all know that uh, that chain is 10 yards. Yeah. And that's cool. And we all kind of. But I also, <laughs> I also wonder. Like, you know, there are variances with people's vision. Yeah. There are different shoe sizes. You will often get a guy spotting the ball on the other side of the field who puts his foot down arbitrarily, like, and you're watching, which foot is it? Okay, it's that foot. And then I'm going, okay, like, you know, let's put a put a tag on the ball. You'll know generally where the ball is. Then you can live with the mistakes. Like, you know, you'll still have to determine where the runner's knee was. When the ball went, you know, when's the knee down? But at least you could be able to see on video. That's when the where the when the knee went down. That's where the GPS tag said the ball was. Find your friends. Find your football. If American hockey can superimpose an arrow on the puck to help us spot it during a hockey game, then I'm sure we can figure out something for football. All right, let's do the five at five. Five biggest stories going on. The five at five. Brought to you by Mercedes-Benz of Wilsonville. See more than 4,000 vehicles at Swickert.com. Well, Kevin Warren is off to the Chicago Bears. The former Big Ten Conference Commissioner was formally announced today as the President and Chief Executive Officer of the Chicago Bears, where he will try to help the Bears build a new football stadium. I think it's a good move for Warren, who gets out while his stock is still worth a damn. But uh, it also appears, according to an ESPN report, that Warren wasn't being offered a contract extension and that 
Athletic directors inside the Big Ten Conference had lost confidence in his leadership. Uh, if you're a Pac-12 fan, I think this gives you renewed faith that this conference is sticking together. Not that we've ever said anything otherwise on this show. You can go back to June. I've been preaching the same message since June 30th, July 1st, whatever. Pac-12 is going to be all right. UCLA, USC are off to the Big Ten. But Kevin Warren, the guy who engineered that, is off to the Chicago Bears. Ugh. Number two, Anna, go. Well, it looks like the NCAA is trying to uh, rein in the transfer portal craziness. A council for the NCAA Division I has approved legislation today to limit waivers for second-time transfers. And now undergraduate players who transfer will have specific guidelines they have to meet to be eligible for immediate playing time starting in the 2023-24 season or they risk sitting out a year in between transfers. This is according to CBS Sports. So the player can receive immediate eligibility if they have a physical injury or mental health condition that pushed them to transfer from a school. The NCAA will consider special circumstances that could force a player to leave an institution like sex assault or abuse. No other factors will be considered, including academic considerations or playing time. Interesting. We, we heard about this first mentioned yesterday, and uh, now it appears as though they're moving forward with it. It's official? Yeah, they approved it. Today. They approved it today. Uh, number three in the five at five, uh, Trailbla former Trailblazer big man Myers Leonard's in the news. He will work out for the Lakers tomorrow. He's been out of the NBA for two years. The Athletic reporting that the seven-footer out of Illinois, the former number 11 pick in the 2012 draft, just five spots behind Damian Lillard, is going to get a workout. Now, he last played for the Miami Heat uh, before the incident that uh, you all remember involving an anti-Semitic slur that resulted in him being suspended for the for the. Uh, by the NBA and fined, and shortly afterward he was traded to Oklahoma City, and then he was waived. Myers Leonard spent seven seasons with the Blazers. The 30-year-old uh, has career averages of just 5.6 points on 39% uh, shooting, and uh, Myers Leonard going to get uh, an opportunity to work out for the Lakers. Anna, number three, go. You know, we were just talking yesterday about uh, coaches going too far. Well, we've got some high school football players in Texas that went to the hospital after their coach apparently forced them to do 400 push-ups as a form of discipline. John Harrell, the head football coach at Rockwall Heath High School, has been suspended and placed on leave after eight of his players required medical attention and had to go to the hospital they, uh, some of them needed um, a lot of help. One parent whose child was hospitalized says the players had to do hundreds of push-ups in just an hour with no water, no breaks. Man. Rough. You're bringing the rough stuff today. Mm-hmm. No water, no breaks? Yeah. Man. Sounds like this radio show for me. <laughs> I, get, I get commercial breaks, though. <laughs> uh, number, what am I on? Uh, five. Five. I think, right? Really? Yeah. Uh, Already? Two, three, four, five. Yeah. You're up. Am I on five? I Man, think so. That flew by. Let's talk NFL. Let's talk NFL. Lamar Jackson is out. He says his knee is unstable. The Ravens will be without quarterback Lamar Jackson. He posted to social media that he will not play 
in Sunday night's wild card game at the Cincinnati Bengals. Uh, he had a PCL grade two sprain. Said it's on the borderline of a strain three. There's some inflammation surrounding his knee. He says his knee is stable. He wish he could be out there. But it looks like the Ravens will go with either Tyler Huntley or Anthony Brown against the Bengals. Duck fans, you may remember Anthony Brown. Came in on a Mario Cristobal coach team and played well for the Ducks. Uh, Tyler Huntley, former Utah uh, quarterback. So it'll be a Pac-12 quarterback for the Ravens on Sunday against the uh, Bengals. This is the first time Jackson's addressed his injury since uh, spraining that knee on December 4th. Ravens have described him as a week-to-week decision, but he has not suited up for about 40 days, and he remains walking with a limp. That is the 5 at 5, five biggest stories going on in sports. Uh, I want to unpack this. Guys, how do you feel, Peter, Stephen, how do you feel about Myers-Leonard getting a workout? I think, um, I mean, he seems to have paid his dues, right, for saying making a mistake. I don't think it's one of those mistakes where, you should be, uh, you know, blackballed from the NBA and never get another chance. And I think for the Lakers, like he's not a very good player, but he can shoot the basketball. So on the court, he may help them slightly. Not going to be a big time difference, but I think he can actually help the Lakers a little bit because they don't have much shooting. But um, I think it's, uh, I think it's okay for Myers Leonard. You know, it seems like he's uh, he's righted his wrongs, and he, you know, he did some did some outreach uh, to the Jewish community stuff like that. So I think uh, I think it's I think it's okay. Yeah, Peter, can he help the Lakers? Uh, I mean, they need size and they need shooting. He can shoot, and he's seven feet tall, but he's just not really good at anything else. So, I mean, yes, but he's certainly not going to make a a huge difference down there. Yeah, I think uh, the you know it's kind of when I'm looking at the Lakers and you know the end here of LeBron's career, um, it's probably not how he expected it to go. Do you guys believe and think that LeBron has carried himself well amid all of this? Or has he hurt himself uh, with sort of the uh, frustration that he has expressed at different times? Or do you see his – I guess what I'm asking is, poor form or not, LeBron on on a losing Lakers franchise? I mean, but but they they won a championship, so I think – yeah. So I, I, it's hard to say for me. Like I think it was good that they, you know, they basically sold off all their young players for Anthony Davis. Got a title. Yeah, it's the bubble title. Do we take it seriously? Not as much as a regular championship, but like I would still say it's a somewhat successful run in L.A. Um, I, I think that he kind of he just reiterated what he is, and that is a guy that has to have all the control inside of a franchise. He wants to control all the players. Uh, control every, all the messaging, all the marketing around it. So I, I think it doesn't hurt his legacy to me because I feel like this is just what he is and this is what I think he is all the time. Yeah, I, it's not hurting his legacy. I think we've all been aware of just LeBron and kind of the ridiculous stuff that he does, and he'll take shots at the team or the office, the front office through the media, even though everyone knows he's the front office. But at a certain point, and I think we're getting close, we're not there yet, but the juice isn't worth the squeeze. I've been saying that for a while. Laker fan, be careful what you wish for. And again, look, great player, got him a title, you know, second best player, maybe third best of all time if you put Kareem second. Uh, But at a certain point, all his nonsense isn't going to be worth it. So maybe it's not now, maybe it won't be next year, but it's coming. I'm glad you. I'm just glad you put Michael Jordan as the best player of all time. That's I can't a gimme. Stand, I can't stand people who go, "No, it's LeBron." And yeah, I'm talking to you, listener out there. <laughs> yeah, maybe you didn't see Jordan in his prime, um, but I, I'm telling you, I did, and I saw LeBron in his prime, and 
it wasn't, you know, it. LeBron is a generational talent, different player, physically imposing, probably could have played in the NFL, maybe could have been a boxer, like he would have been heavyweight champion, like he could have, LeBron could have done anything, but Michael Jordan was, was better, he just was. Yeah. I, and I think that it's not even a thing. And, and everyone says, you know, Jordan or LeBron. And to me, I mean, I don't even know that it's clear cut that LeBron's number two. I think you can make a real case for Kareem at number two. Because, look, it's it's the Basketball Hall of Fame. It takes college into account. I mean, they had to change the rules for the guy. If you're talking longevity, Kareem. If you're talking championships, Kareem. If you're talking peak individual seasons, Kareem. Uh, even then, MJ, clear cut number one. Yeah, I think uh, when I look back at that, too, and I just look at, you know, the documentary, I thought the documentary, there's two things, two good things that came out of the pandemic. Like, if we could just say there was two good things, like, you know, um, people went home and they got to know their families again. That was a, a positive byproduct. Never mind that they got sick of their family about two weeks after being home. That, you know, you got home, you got to see your family. The second thing was, we got some pretty good binge watching going on during that pandemic in the early stages with that Tiger King documentary and then Michael Jordan. You know, it, other than that, it was kind of a drag. And other, uh, you other know, than that, the pandemic know, was a was, drag. The pandemic that killed can, so many people I know. was can a I, real drag. But can I have that kind of humor? Can I do that without somebody freaking out on me? Like that Jordan documentary got. You know what? I don't know how many days. Because at the beginning of the pandemic, they said, oh, it's going to be two weeks. Everybody go home. <laughs> I don't know how many days passed from the from March whatever yeah. of 2020 yeah. to now. Okay. You just, you had to mark it by what you watched. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> that, the timeline has to be but according to what you binged. I, I don't know how many time. days passed, but I can tell you this, that Michael Jordan documentary made about eight of those days go a little bit faster. <laughs> Tiger King, I got about three days out of that one. Okay, that was it. The rest of this, uh, you know. Yeah. And Anna and I were in a restaurant today. I got to tell this story real quick. We were in a restaurant today, and there was a real nice lady seated at a table that was near us. And she appeared to be sitting with her father, who was elderly. And the best I could tell is he had some memory challenges. Mm -hmm. Okay, maybe she had picked him up for lunch. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, she was talking to him and talking real slow and kind of reminding him. She, she at one point said, you know, you you took a trip. Where where did they go? Borneo. They, yeah, you went to Borneo, and he said, I did? And she said, yeah, and she filled in. The, so it was that kind of conversation. Yeah. But she eventually, bless her, got on the subject of the pandemic. And she had to explain to him what the pandemic was. And I was on the edge of my seat. Because I was like, how do you summarize what happened from March of 2020 to now in like 15 seconds or less? How would you summarize that? Yeah. And I thought she did it beautifully. She said all the countries shut down and there was a medical thing. And, a, and I was just like, man, this is like Fred Rogers, like telling his audience about the pandemic. I know. It was, it was, it was a nice moment. It was. I hope my kids are as kind to me as she was to her dad when I'm that age. Yeah. You know? All yeah. right. Leave it here. You got the BFT. We got Punch It Audio coming up, plus a whole bunch of talk about the NFL. You've got the home of the truth.
Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I'll be really interested to see what the Big Ten Conference does uh, in the wake of Kevin Warren leaving for the Chicago Bears. Uh, More and more stuff coming out about Warren's tenure with the Big Ten Conference. I wrote about the fixer today. He had a fixer on the payroll, Carrie Cecil, who has her hands in a lot of different things when it comes to college football and athletics. Uh, she is a self-described fixer. That's Chuck Cecil's wife. Uh, they live in Arizona. He's an assistant coach at the University of Arizona, coaches the defensive backs on that program. But Carrie runs a PR, branding, crisis management, uh, what do you want to call it, fixing firm, um, you know, uh, somebody told me uh, they call it disaster PR. Uh, and a lot of people use her as a publicist prior to the renewal of their employment contracts. A lot of the high-profile coaches and athletic directors and university presidents and executives. And I started looking at all the people that she is contracted with. And it turns out that Carrie Cecil's firm is contracted with Fox and UCLA and the Big Ten Conference and Kevin Warren directly and a variety of other uh, entities. But she has been there, and I laid it out today at johnconzano.com. She has been there all along at every step of the way. And I suspect, I mean, even when he talked in July at Big Ten Media Day, she tweeted after the event, a photograph of her and Kevin Warren standing outside, and she hashtagged it speeches like she had her hands on the speech that Kevin Warren gave at Big Ten Media Day. Now, Warren is off to the NFL. Carrie Cecil's reached out to me. I reached out to her this morning to get comment for the piece I was writing. She got back to me and said it's been a busy day for her. She'll give me a comment later. But I don't know if she needs to make a comment. And I, don't, I actually don't know if I blame her because she's just doing her job. Um, she's been described as the Ari Fleischer of the sports world. She is a fixer. Um, she says that uh, her job is to uh, manage the headlines, and she makes no apology for that. Uh, I just think it's really interesting, given all the noise, given all the misinformation, given the way that UCLA and USC ended up in the Big Ten and all the talking points in the wake of that, it's really interesting to know that there was an individual involved in this equation whose job it was to, you know, to control the headlines. And uh, I have been told subsequently uh, that she also worked with Auburn uh, as they went to hire Hugh Freeze and, and bring him in after uh, what was a PR disaster. And, you know, a, a guy that a, lo- a large part of the fan base in the college football world said, you know, that guy should never be coaching again. Um, so she's got a role in this thing, has played a role in this thing, and if you are interested in palace intrigue, you should read the column on Carrie Cecil that I posted this morning at johnconzano.com. Um, I just, I'm into this stuff because to me this is like, you know, we all see the end result. We see UCLA and USC going to the Big Ten. At, but I remember Kevin Warren being in trouble right at the beginning of his tenure in 2020, the first 71 days of his tenure, pandemic hit. Boom. He starts making mistakes. 
you know, remember, Nebraska was pissed off. The ADs were all mad. The players were saying, we're going to sue the Big Ten. They've stopped playing. Everybody was saying, Kevin Warren, who took over for Jim Delaney, who had been there for 30 years, Kevin Warren should be fired. Kevin Warren needs to get out. Kevin Warren pivoted in that moment and hired Kerry Cecil. And from that moment on, all of a sudden the headlines changed. In, in a particular tweet from Cecil caught my eye, and I linked it in the piece. Again, if you want to read it, go read it. There's much more to it. But she tweeted this, guys. Tell me what you think of this. On August 18th, amid the Big Ten signing a billion-dollar media rights deal, amid all the Pac-12 fans and you know some fans nationally being upset at the Big Ten, saying they stole UCLA, they stole USC, they, they trampled tradition, she puts this tweet out as the Big Ten announces the media rights agreement on August 18th at 8.54 p.m. She tweets this. Thank you, journalists. Parentheses. You know who you are. End parentheses. Who helped us tell the Big Ten, CBS, Fox, NBC, Peacock, historic story. While Kevin Warren made the largest media rights partner deal in college sports history, my partnership with you is priceless. And then she's got an emoji in there. Is she saying she's in partnership with the journalists who covered the story? You know who you are? I think she is. If you are interested in the House of Cards or Palace Intrigue, check that out. Read it at johnconzano.com. But Peter and Stephen, what do you make of a tweet like that? Thank you, journalists. You know who you are. That's certainly what it sounds like. And we see a lot of that, don't we? Where you just sort of accept the story and you're willing to, yeah, okay, this is obviously crafted narrative. I'm going to go ahead and just roll with that and push it out. And, you know, sometimes it's innocuous or innocuous. Sometimes it's uh, a little shady, you know, and we see that a lot in the uh, NBA, especially in the uh, super national sphere in the uh, the association. So I think that's a little bit of what's going on here, John. Yeah, and we've seen that in the NFL, too. Remember Adam Schefter, Deshaun Watson. Mm. When he put that out there um, earlier this year, talking about Deshaun Watson basically saying, you know, he, he's a good guy and uh, he's going to be suspended. But that, yeah, I mean, I think, I think that's what she's kind of saying. And you know, is it a mistake in her part? Probably not. But like, I think it's pretty naive of all of us to think that like these, uh, you know, the people in charge or the people getting scoops, like they have these relationships with the media and they have a handshake deal that they're going to do. They help each other out. So yeah, I think you're right on. I, I just feel like. You know, I'm not one of those trusted journalists in the inner circle because I walk in with grenades in my hands. And so they don't like the PR people. They don't they don't trust me in that way. And I'm glad I don't want to be trusted in that way, because if I see something I don't like, I'm going to write it. I can tell you me writing about the PR person. Nobody more uncomfortable than the PR person who wants to stay behind the scenes. But I I said it today, like I've been sitting on this column for several weeks reporting it piece by piece, watching, talking to people, gathering string. And when I heard Warren was leaving, I was like, I have to write it today. It, because if I don't write it today, when am I going to write this thing? And people need to know. And I had immediately people reach out to me in the pro and college sports world who said, thank you for writing that. Uh, needed to be told, and oh, by the way, did you know she was involved in, and then they fill in this other scandal, and this other person that had a questionable background, and she's a fixer, and she says that. She gave an interview to the Sports Business Journal last year, and she said, you know, I consider myself a fixer, you know? Well, the fixer 
Got got her day in the sun today. Uh, leave it here. We got punch it audio coming up, and we'll talk the NFL. Back to the bald faced truth with John Canzano on seven fifty. The game. Big NFL weekend, obviously, wild card weekend. NFL, we, you know, every year when this weekend comes along, we find out we end up at the end of the weekend going, man, this is why the NFL is king. They get it. Their playoffs are great. I think we've had some really good play, like baseball. I thought the playoffs were good. I think the NBA, they, we've had a series here, a series there, was just riveting. But the NFL, I mean, it just wins. Like, like you give me the Chargers, Jaguars. You give me the Seahawks, Niners. You give me Tom Brady and the Buccaneers against the Cowboys. It doesn't matter. Any of these games, uh, we're all going to be locked into all of them. Uh, and that leads us, of course, to Punch It Audio. We have the best sound from all around. Let's do it. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Face Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio, presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. San Jose Mercury News sports columnist Dieter Kurtenbach joined us uh, earlier today on this show. We talked about Brock Purdy, the Niners quarterback. What is it that makes Brock Purdy capable in a playoff situation? Here's Dieter on Purdy. Punch. With Purdy, I, I think he has that supercomputer. Purdy is really sharp. He is picking up plays at, at an absurd rate. They're throwing plays at him at halftime that he's never run, that he's never heard. And he's learning and memorizing them and executing them to the, the highest ability. I mean, it's not normal for him to be able to execute this offense at the level they're asking him to execute this offense. Look, Niners have looked good with Purdy at quarterback in part because they're not a quarterback first offense. This is an offense that wants to run the ball, wants to use play action, wants to use misdirection, wants to get the ball to Kittle, wants to get the ball to Debo Samuels. Uh, you know, we saw it with Jimmy Garoppolo. He was throwing for 200, 225 yards, and the Niners were winning games. Uh, I think it's really an interesting study, and I think if, if the Niners are successful in these playoffs, let's say they get to the NFC title game, or, or maybe they make the Super Bowl, or, or maybe if they even won the Super Bowl, which I don't think they're going to do, but if they get deep into these playoffs, I do think it's going to cause some other teams that cycle through quarterbacks to stop and go, hey, what are we missing here? Because the Niners went through Garoppolo, Trey Lance. I remember in training camp they said, oh, we're going to keep Purdy, even though he was the last guy picked. Um, they felt like they had a little something with him, and, and it turns out they really needed him. They would not be where they are if they didn't have that foresight. Rick Barry, nuisance for the NBA, Hall of Fame player. He's got some thoughts on the NBA. He says they need to start calling the game by the rules, for one. Here's Rick Barry. Get the officials to call it by the rule book. Okay. Stop the traveling, stop the carrying the ball, stop the moving screens. Call the damn game according to the rule book because players will adjust. If you're going to allow them to get away with it, tell well, of course I'll keep doing it. Call the game according to the rule book. It's such an advantage to let a guy carry the basketball or take an extra step. That's ridiculous. You know, or a guy to move on offense. I mean, why are you giving all this advantage to guys? They're breaking the rules. 
Call the game according to the rule. I charted a game a few years ago, Chicago, Atlanta. 59 moving screens weren't called. 59. That's insane. I can't even tell you how many times they carried the ball, how many times they traveled with the ball. It's pathetic. It's, I mean, for me to watch this game the way I was taught how to play the game and to watch this and what they allow to let go, it's an embarrassment. Look, Rick Barry's got a point here. I do think they let the players get away with hell, but I also think that that's kind of been what the NBA is, and star players get star treatment, including Rick Barry once upon a time. I would wonder how, what the game would look like if you called it by the rules. Steven, you call an NBA game by the rules, how frustrated are NBA players? Uh, fans are frustrated as well because it's going to be a lot of starting and then a lot of stopping because he is right. Like, there's a lot of carrying. Um, traveling is a little different story. Like, I don't know that people understand the rules of traveling for the NBA. It's different in the NBA than it is for college basketball or high school or other professional leagues. So I don't know that people are necessarily understand the rules of traveling, but there would be a lot of starting and stopping if they're on the rules for moving screens and for carrying the basketball. I don't think we would like it. Like I think it would be a very bad product. I remember when the uh, the officials were, I don't remember if they were on strike or in, oh, being yeah. locked out, but we had the replacement officials in preseason. I went to those games. They were horrible. <laughs> it was unwatchable. <laughs> they were hard to watch. Yeah, a lot of starting, a lot of stopping. Nikola Jokic uh, talking about the Nuggets defense. Says that locker room is tight. Here's the Joker punching. Nicola, you guys have won four straight, 11 in a row here at home, still atop the Western Conference. What's been the key to your recent success? We are playing good, you know. We are playing together. We are sharing the ball. We always find uh, the right guy and uh, look at the day. Like, we had a couple guys in the, the double figure, so I think that's the key, playing together. Your coach told us earlier today about defense and the intensity has ratcheted up in the last 12 games. You guys have had the third best defensive rating in the league. How much of an emphasis has been on that side? It is. I mean, I think we all know the defense. If you want to if you wanna win a championship, you've got, you got to play defense. And uh, we are going in the right trend. Uh, hopefully, we're going to continue to, to play this, you know. Uh, offense can come and go, but defense needs to be needs to be there every night. Your teammate Bruce Brown told us about this locker room, and he says it's the best locker room he's been a part of. What is it about this group that's so special? He's sitting next to Lotko and me, so <laughs> we, we tell him some Serbian and um, Slovenian uh, stuff, so he's enjoying it. <laughs> Love them talking about the locker room and the closeness. Look, Blazer fans, you remember uh, it wasn't that long ago the Blazers were in a, uh, you know, a, a series with the Nuggets trying to get to the Western Conference Finals, and everybody's kind of going, hey, which one of these franchises is, you know, going to really put it together? Well, Denver's still there and playing at a high level, and Portland has fallen off. Ian Rappaport, NFL Network, talking about the Bears' big hire, Kevin Warren, Big Ten commissioner announced today as the CEO and president of the Chicago Bears. Punch it. Kevin Warren, the former Vikings executive who has been a Big Ten commissioner, the Big Ten commissioner, is becoming the new president and CEO of the Chicago Bears. He takes over for Ted Phillips, who had been with the organization for 40 years, 23 in his current role is really someone who has been a mainstay through various changes in the Bears organization. He is set to retire at the end of the season. Uh, needed a successor, and it is Kevin Warren. Obviously, has a ton of familiarity in the division. Uh, spent a lot of time with the Big Ten. Was in some headlines, plenty of headlines in the Big Ten, and now takes over a Chicago Bears organization that not only 
has plenty of opportunities for improvement going forward, plus the number one pick. Also potentially looking at a new stadium that no doubt will be first and foremost uh, in his sights. Look, uh, look, Kevin Warren's being brought in because of the stadium. He helped the Vikings get their stadium. The Bears would like some of that revenue. Uh, the Bears, the, the fact that Rappaport's bringing up the Bears draft pick, whatnot, Kevin Warren's not going to run the football side of the operation. He's going to run the business side. The general manager will run the football side. But I also view this as Kevin Warren getting out of the Big Ten Conference. He knows he needs to get out. He, you know, he didn't have the support of the athletic directors inside his own conference. Despite the billion-dollar TV deal, he was not well-regarded as a leader. Uh, I think he's trying, you know, you buy, buy low, sell high. Kevin Warren uh, getting out while he can, I think, in the Big Ten. It'll be interesting to see who they hire. Some, some candidates that I want you to keep an eye on. Gene Smith, the Ohio State Athletic Director. Really cushy deal at Ohio State. He could become a candidate. I'm not going to make him the favorite, though, but keep an eye on the ACC Commissioner, Jim Phillips. That's a guy that the Big Ten might be interested in. Leave it here. You got the BFT. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Top of the hour in Portland right here on 750 The Game. Peter Sampson's got the pulse. You want to put your finger on the pulse of sports? Peter Sampson's got it. What are you uh, What are you going to talk about tonight on the Pulse? Man, we've got a lot of NFL to talk about with the playoffs uh, going down here. I want to talk about the neutral site game. Derek Carr has pinned goodbye. Where's a good fit for him? Is DeAndre Hopkins leaving the Cardinals? Who could be the next Jets offensive coordinator? So many questions. We're going to break it all down. Do you think the, you know, I'm a little bit, like I know NFL owners love money. Um, and so a potential Bills Chiefs. AFC title game. You'll turn, you're going to talk about this coming up, but I'm kind of wondering, like, with Pac-12 teams, like Oregon played a neutral site game this season in Atlanta. Uh, we've seen other neutral site games in Dallas, and you know, SoFi Stadium's been talked about. Um, it, it gets me thinking about all the different stadiums that people don't get to see. So I think the neutral site games are sometimes fun because. The both fan bases get to go see a new stadium and you know, somewhere like Jerry World or or SoFi Stadium or whatnot. Do you guys have a bucket list stadium you want to see? Hmm. Somewhere you want to go. Yeah, I've always wanted to go to um LSU at night. I always think that would be the best. Like I've seen a lot of videos and stuff with LSU's really cooking and they play a really good team. Uh and that place probably get a little weird. I think that'd be a lot of fun. I was at an LSU spring game and it was wild. Like they had the band and people people were tailgating. It was like a it was it was a better crowd than like a regular season Pac twelve game in most places. You know, I wanna say they had like forty thousand show up wow. and it was it was hopping and like people think, were, you know. Yeah, like think about out. the L S U Alabama game this year, how crazy that was. Like there's something special about L S U at night I always feel like. So that I mean that is number one on my list. How about a worse stadium? Have you ever been in a bad stadium and you go, oh, I never want to see a game there again? To me, for me, the Oakland Coliseum pops to mind uh, where the A's and the Raiders used to play. Um, that was not a good stadium. It was kind of an old, crumbling, multi-purpose 1970s style is what it felt like stadium. 
Uh, Candlestick Park, I grew up going to Candlestick Park. Everybody else hated it. I didn't mind it because I loved being there. And to me, it was a treat to get there. And I think part of it was I didn't have any contacts. So I, I didn't see Dodger Stadium. I didn't see Fenway or Wrigley until years later. And so I had no context for what it was. It was the greatest thing ever because it was the only thing I knew. Yeah, oh, without a doubt as a kid. I mean, the wind, oh, bring it on. That's just more charm. You mentioned it, but I think my bucket list, uh, it's definitely not football. It would be, a, I think it'd be a day game at Wrigley. I have a my very, very good friend is a Cubs fan, and once we were older and he was of means, he took a trip out there just to catch a, uh, a day series. I don't remember who they were playing, but he, he had the time of his life. That's great. How about you, Steven? You got a bucket list? Why well, is that LSU, but... Um... For a, like a, or a, a bad, how about a bad stadium that you've Ooh. been to? Um, I mean the Memorial you Coliseum, would, not not the best. You you consider that bad? Some people around here, you know, that's blasphemy. The, that's where the Blazers want it. But, but I think you're right too. It's out, so outdated. Yeah, I I mean I think that like the glass looks cool, the glass palace is cool, but when you're inside, I mean that, that yeah. it's nothing. I saw the Wiggles in there. <laughs> I saw Sesame Street in there. Yeah, see? I saw monster trucks in there. It works for that kind of thing. You know, the thing that surprised me, I talked about that PBR rodeo thing that we went to. Like, that they brought that much dirt in manure or whatever they were bringing <laughs> in for the rodeo. They were able to bring that in and just set it down, like, over. I guess they picked the cord up, they put down a barrier, then they put the dirt down, and then they bulldoze it. And it's just amazing to me what they can do, like, for one night. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. I always wonder how many people are working on that. And it, when you get backstage... I mean, obviously, you're not bringing dirt down for, like, a concert or something like that. But with the equipment, the lighting and everything, it's a massive team. The logistics of those are just wild. And I'm imagining, like, who's the guy that's in charge of the dirt? You know what I mean? Does he have a Does he have a rider where he demands brown M&Ms, too? You know? I, I bet you. I don't think the Cowboys are that glamorous because the, cause the uh, Cowboys, <laughs> uh, you know, they're happy to be there and they're making – $6,000 or whatnot. A uh, little bit of breaking news, uh, some sad news. Lisa Marie Presley passed away just uh, moments ago. The only uh, child of Elvis Presley died. She was 54. Apparently she was hospitalized today and passed away. Remember Lisa Marie married Michael Jackson, didn't she not? Yeah. Like, for yeah. just a blank? Yeah. It, well, how long ago was that now? 20, 25 years? I, that yeah. was in the late 90s. That was a while ago, but uh, passed away today. I don't have other details, just breaking news that the only uh, child of Elvis Presley is now dead at the age of 54. Yeah, she did not look good at the the Golden Globes. She looked like she was struggling a little bit. Man, it's really sad stuff. Uh, So Peter Sampson of the Pulse is coming up. Tomorrow we'll talk more. You know, I'm dedicating all of tomorrow's show to the NFL playoffs and the weekend. Um, it's interesting because during the commercial break earlier in the show when I was reaching out trying to get Jimmy Joyce, I was also trying to get Dale Scott, the uh, longtime uh, crew chief, Major League Baseball umpire. He's got some strong thoughts, too, about the balls and strikes. He's going to come on next week. Middle of next week, uh, we'll get a visit from Dale Scott. So I appreciate everybody who listens to the show and makes it part of their day because, uh, you know, i got to be honest. Like, I have fun doing this show. I enjoy – the conversation that we have. I, I like the banner. My favorite part of the show today, guys, was earlier in the show when we were talking about the pickleball player who, uh, you know, almost died because he turned his head so fast. And then close second, you know, kind of like when we're kicking around nonsense in the uh, in the 4 o'clock hour when Anna popped in. 
and we're all just sort of debating different things. But I enjoy the callers who call in and the, you know, some days, I'll be honest, like you're in a studio. Peter's in a studio. Uh, you know, you've got Steven in a studio. Uh, I don't know if you guys ever, you're looking at each other through the glass, right? And I'm in a studio. Sometimes you feel a little disconnected from each other in a way, and then sometimes the audience. But I'll tell you what brings it back for me is you're tweeting at me during the show. You're calling into the show. I'm bumping into you at Moda Center during the rodeo thing, and you're going, hey, fist bump, never thought I'd see you here some cowboy fist bumping me and I'm like that guy listens to me if that guy's listening you know who isn't listening so I appreciate you whether you're in the gym saying hi or sending me an email or tweeting at us or if you're you know you you see me somewhere and you go hey I this is what I like or don't like about the show I just appreciate that you're out there and you're part of it um, it's uh, it's a lot of fun for me and Stevens I, I don't know how, when's your anniversary man how long have you been on the show Ooh, uh, anniversary of the show. It's right around June twenty eighth. I want to say I had a big okay. tw- I had a big tweet that day. I remember. Um, <laughs> it's right around. It's right around when USC. I have a new favorite part of the show. <laughs> when USC UCLA left to the Big Ten. It was a couple days before that. So June twenty eighth, you uh, you came on the uh, you came on the show and made your debut. Gosh, it feels like it was longer ago. You know. Feels like it. Maybe it's gone just slow. Was this uh, was this uh, the same day that was Brittany Griner detained that day, or was it right around then? I remember that too. I was. I remember I was supposed to come in, and uh, the Blazers had just gotten the seventh pick in the draft, and hmm. uh, I didn't come in. So it was like a couple days after that. Yeah. Big day. Big, Big day in Blazers history. They got the seven pick in the draft. <laughs> yeah. I loved it. But yeah, Stephen, you've been a you've been a great addition to the show. I I love that we don't Thank always you. agree on everything, and I I know you and Peter are like you know, I I feel like I go to you a lot on things that I want to know because sometimes I I feel like especially with the Blazers I want to know what like you guys are thinking of the Blazers especially right now with this team in a tailspin. So uh, I appreciate you uh, you being here and Peter you as well a uh, long time. Peter, how long have you been? part of the show i just had my fifth anniversary here at alpha three weeks ago a month ago maybe well happy anniversary thank you what do you get for five years around here uh a what fi- do we give you a 15 second spot on all seven uh seven radio stations here i feel like we should get a billboard or something for five years i just take some you know? money like like not on i-5 for five <laughs> years but like you should get a billboard on like you know on uh, 84 you know i'd love that like heading heading eastbound on 84. Can we just like that, hang up like a poster outside the, the building or something. Let's <laughs> do it. That's the yeah. five year. That's the five year thing. Ten years we we you get on 217, and 15 years you get on I5, and and we go from there. All right, I want you to leave it here as Peter Sampson and the Pulse are coming up. Um, I'm eager to hear your thoughts on this neutral site game. Everybody, it, it's flying a little under the radar. I think when people start talking about it is after. The Bills are going to win their game this weekend, and then it'll the path for the for the Chiefs and the Bills in the AFC title game is already there. But I think people will see that entering next weekend. But I'm glad you're jumping in front of it because I think uh, that is going to be a big game, and I'm eager to see how that will factor in the playoffs. Leave it here.